Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Before we begin the episode, this is Brian J. Rowan here. Uh, just for a little announcement about the audio quality on this episode, we are trying some new ways to communicate with more people so that we're able to bring you even better guests. And one of the things that happened when we decided to do that is that the audio record got a little messed up. Luckily, the guests sound great. I, on the other hand, uh, sound pretty, pretty weird, pretty strange. There was reverb. Not sure what happened. We worked all week to fix it, uh, which is why the episode is coming to you late. And it is much improved, but you will still notice that my voice does not have its usual timbre. So sorry for that, but it's still a great episode. Uh, our guest, David Rooney, is fantastic. And the movie we're talking about, Sons of the Lambs, is also fantastic. So try not to let my degraded audio quality ruin your enjoyment of this here podcast. And uh, hopefully next week, which we'll actually be posting just days after this one does, uh, we will have everything sorted out. So thanks and enjoy the episode. Bye. This episode of the Film Stage Show is presented by the streaming service Film Movement Plus. Enjoy a world of cinema today on all of your favorite devices by signing up at filmmovementplus.com. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Rob and Barr. Hello. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. Put the lotion in the basket. <laughs> Jesus. Put the fucking lotion in the basket. Oh, man. We are starting off at a real high key, and I am very concerned. Um, with us today to talk about Silence of the Lambs, it's David Rooney. Hi. Hi. How are you doing today? Evening, everybody. I'm, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Uh, I'm the chief film critic at uh, Hollywood Reporter, uh, formerly the chief theater critic. So I've covered both those bases. Uh, before that, for a long time, I was at Variety. Uh, starting in the early 90s. So I think I was actually the, the chief Rome correspondent, Italian correspondent for Variety at the time that Silence of the Lambs came out. So um, that's pretty much me. That is awesome. Well, we thank you for being here with us today to talk about the Silence of the Lambs. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. Still my love. So really happy to talk about it. I don't know that I've ever come across anyone who, when Silence of the Lambs is mentioned, is like, oh, I hate that movie. Gene Siskel, <laughs> dead now, but, you know, at the time, he was the one who hated it. Oh, no, wow. sorry, not Gene Siskel. Uh, Ebert. Yes, it was Gene, Gene Siskel, and Ebert teased him relentlessly about it. <laughs> yes, he should. I, um, but do we know how Michael Snydell feels about this movie? <laughs> he probably has problems. He probably thinks it's too neat. Um, it's great that even though he's not here, we can still make fun of him. Uh, Michael, if you're listening, we love you. Uh, tweet your feelings about Sons of the Lambs. Uh, before we get into Sons of the Lambs, however, uh, the usual stuff up front. You can email us your thoughts, podcast.filmstage.com. Uh, you can also uh, reach out and give us a comment or rating on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter at FilmStageShow and Facebook, The Film Stage Show. If you like what we're doing and you'd like to support us, you can become a patron of this podcast by going to patreon.com slash the film stage show. For as little as one dollar an episode, you get access to our Slack channel and first crack at all of our movie related raffles. In addition, we are brought to you by Film Movement Plus. 
Enjoy a world of cinema with Film Movement Plus streaming subscription, award-winning independent features, documentaries, and shorts, as well as restored classics are all waiting for you to discover. Plus, there are guaranteed new films added every week. Available on all your favorite devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But because you are a savvy Film Stage Show listener, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code STAGE when signing up. So go to filmmovementplus.com and start streaming today. What are the raffle prizes, Brian? Oh, so like we uh, give away a lot of um, like Blu-rays. I was hoping a, a Silence of the Lambs themed raffle, you know, Evian skin cream and some a bottle of Eau du Temps. <laughs> Uh, if we could send liquor in the mail, we'd send you a nice Chianti. Some second-rate <laughs> shoes. I mean, I was just gonna say good bag and some cheap shoes. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean, we'll get into it obviously, and this will be the entirety of the podcast. But like, if you're a if you're an <laughs> FBI agent, you kind of want like cheap shoes, right? Because you know, a lot of gum chewing. Yeah, exactly. All the gum stuck to the bottom of your shoes. Fair, fair enough. A lot of walking for for pointless reasons. But that's why you would want expensive shoes so that they last and they so don't they, hurt your feet. I mean, right, but I mean, you wouldn't yeah. get like Nolablonics. You'd get just like something with like some Gore-Tex, right, and some like nice insoles. They don't. They don't have to be combat boots, but, but you know. Also, Clarice is still a trainee. She's not on the big salary yet. She is. She's she still is. got one foot in hillbilly elegy country, I, I, terrified that she's going to become Amy Adams. Or I, worse, I don't. Close. I don't. I don't know what the uh, what the pay rate is for a trainee because I imagine being a trainee means you are full time. Like they're not going to let you be a part time trainee. Right, you so don't get to, like go to Starbucks on your off hours and earn some extra coin. Yeah, so I, I wonder what the pay. I, I mean, I imagine the pay bump is probably significant. Uh, do we think FBI agents make six figures? No. Ooh, how? Okay. I mean, I don't know. I if I had Jack known, Crawford, Jack Crawford is making six figures. Come on. Oh, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, him probably because and he's... definitely FBI Director Roger Corman is making. Six figures. <laughs> So I was I was going to make a joke about FBI agents being like a GS one. Uh, this is for anyone who understands government pay scales. Uh, you get like a a number and a letter assigned to you for what you are. So now now I uh, googled pay level for FBI trainee, and I found on payscale.com that an FBI agent will make between forty thousand and one hundred and ten thousand per year. Hmm. That's, that's a very that's pretty broad wild. Range. Yeah. <laughs> Clarice is a couple decades back, so maybe lower. Oh, I mean, it was probably lower. Yeah. She'd be so on the like, lower end of that spectrum. And she was a woman. This exactly. is true. Yeah. Oh, okay. So yeah. this is FBIjobs.com. <laughs> Why am I doing this? This is crazy. But now all I want to do <laughs> is read this. You have to be between 23 and 36 years of age. Have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree? Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm not reading all this, but I will. Uh, maybe I'll tweet this out for anyone who's interested. Since we've now started on this. <laughs> oh my god! Sorry, I had to ask. I had to ask. This Didn't is the, she live oh, in the oh, dorms oh, oh. too? Like she was living in a in a dorm mm-hmm. with Ardelia, Casey yeah, Lemons. Our, yeah. yeah. They were okay. My husband definitely thinks there was there was like vibe in between them, but I don't know. 
There's an entire subplot in the off-Broadway musical parody, Silence, the musical, which comes with an exclamation mark and jazz hands. As it um, and uh, Ardelia has a big, passionate, secret, uh, unrequited love number for for Clarice. I don't think okay. Clarice... So, so we were sniffing it out. I don't think yeah. Clarice has, like, feelings for anyone. She needs those goddamn lambs to shut up. Like She's she, ambitious, she... too. She's driven. Oh, yeah. There's She's no all about the work. There's no room in her heart or soul for love right now. So I feel like maybe uh, Agent Map is like pining for her. And Clarice is like, isn't it great that I have this friend who will stay up late with me giggling over like finding clues to catching a serial murderer? Yeah, yeah, that's what women definitely do. Catching serial murders? <laughs> stay giggling about like flayed bodies. I mean, true crime is really a, really a big thing right now. So I feel like we are at a point where that's a thing. <laughs> Anyway, are we actually, now that we've kind of weirdly gone on a tangent that's super related to the movie, and yet somehow not related to the movie at all, uh, are we ready to talk about Silence of the Lambs? Absolutely. Yeah, let's awesome. go. Do it. So yes, uh, Silence of the Lambs, I keep calling it just Silence of the Lambs, it's the Silence of the Lambs, directed by Jonathan Demme, and starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, amongst just a super stacked cast. We'll get into it. I didn't realize how deep the bench went on this movie. This is a movie from 1991. Uh, this is a classic review, so be aware that there will be spoilers up front and center. It's a melee. Uh, so if you haven't seen the movie, what are you doing with your life? Um, here <laughs> is the trailer. You spook easily, Starling. Not yet. He's past the others. The last cell. I'll be watching. You'll do fine. <laughs> All right, that is the trailer for Silence of the Lambs. We're here to talk about it. Um, we'll begin with our nutshell thoughts, but as I said, spoilers can happen up front. So if they're related to your nutshell thoughts, feel free to sling them out. David Rooney, what are your basic thoughts on Silence of the Lambs? Well, I love the point that it comes at in Jonathan Demme's career. You know, this guy who started in the Roger Corman factory making exploitation movies. He, um, you know, first film was Caged Heat in, uh, God, whatever year that was. Um, and, you know, so he made Caged Heat. He made uh, Crazy Mama, uh, Fighting Mad. And then he kind of started to morph into these more humanist films, a lot of comedy, a lot of comedy with a screwball edge, you know, dipped his toes in documentary, a lot of music films. And along comes this movie, which really is a throwback to his B-movie origins, but it classes up the B-movie in so many ways with, as you say, a really deep bench of just fabulous casting. And one of the great things Demi uh, always had an eye for was character. He just worked with actors to develop characters in such a way. And I think it's significant that he had two uncommonly intelligent actors here in Hopkins and Jodie Foster, who really did contribute a lot, talk a lot about their characters, and I think added a lot to them. But, you know, I just love the way Demi uses real faces, real people. He, he chooses real character actors. So there's not a kind of central casting look about everybody. You know, okay, you could quibble, there's, you know, a SWAT team headed by Chris Isaac, which, and really Chris Isaac is only usually heading the SWAT team in my fantasies. But um, <laughs> other than that, you know, it's, they're, they're very real faces. And he uses also a lot of people. There are people who worked in the, you know, people who were detailing ambulances and things who suddenly found themselves in the scenes in Memphis. Um, 
And so all of that, I think he elevates it in such a way, he sustains the tension in an incredible way. It's a good tight script. It's, it's a really terrific script by Ted Talley. And I think it withholds its surprises quite well. That giant twist where the FBI turn up in uh, uh, Calumet City and thinking they're at Jamie Gum's house and spoiler, Jodie Foster is actually at Jamie Gum's Gunn's house and doesn't know it. And uh, it's, it's an amazing, the first time I saw that, it was, you know, the audience was jumping in their seat. It, it was a, a real chiller, you know, and you say, if you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs now, what's wrong with you? I will say that my lovely mother who died last year um, refused ever to see this movie. And my dad was really annoyed about it because he saw it at the, at the theater, then wanted to watch it again on TV. She refused to have it on in the house. Uh, and she had maintained all those years that she was never going to watch it. I, I don't know why, because as far as I know, she only ever saw the trailer. Um, but yeah, my mother is the only person in the world who didn't see Silence of the Lambs. Wow. All right. Robin Barr, what are your thoughts on Silence of the Lambs? Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that Michael would probably feel like it was a little too neat because even though I love this film, it's, it's definitely a four out of four star movie. I was watching it last night with my husband and I kept thinking, this is like tied up a little too well where I was like, are there plot holes here? Or is it just making it so that everything kind of goes down this very, um, very paved road? I still love the film, of course. Uh, I've had a real obsession with The Silence of the Lambs um, since I was a kid. I read the book when I was 12. Um, I read Hannibal right after that. It was just, it was one of those things where you almost develop like a, an emotional relationship with the characters. And of course, I'm talking about Dr. Lecter, um, who I often imagined was my mentor I don't know I was a bullied kid and I would just and I wanted to be a psychologist and I would just imagine that Dr. Lecter would like guide me not murder my bullies or anything <laughs> like that but just like teach me how to be a really exacting personality um mm. so I just often imagined he was like my friend <laughs> you know my imaginary friend um you still hear those lambs, Clarice? <laughs> God, Lord Almighty. I am now um, very concerned that like, you're on this podcast and Anthony Hopkins is just whispering in your ear like things to do to us when we disagree with you. No, 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 nothing like that. It was more um it, it was more just like, okay, here is somebody that knows how to get deeply into other people's brains, and I really and not physically, and then emotionally or psychologically. <laughs> Uh, this is not Hannibal. Um, I just really glommed onto that. I wanted to be that person that could analyze somebody until they just was were completely broken. Until they um, swallowed their own tongue. Yeah, basically. Because <laughs> I, I was always the kind of kid that I, I really prized intellect. And that was what I felt like was my only weapon against the world. And so, you know... For me, Dr. Lecter was the epitome of that person that weaponizes their brain and their intellect and their um, and their acumen. And I just always, uh, I always really 
value that in, in his character. And I didn't even see Silence of the Lambs until I was like 14 or something. I was so ingrained in the book and the book was ingrained in me um, that the, that the visual aspect, like I didn't need that. And so when I did see the film, it was almost like, okay, but like the book is better, you know, whatever a dumb 14 year old thinks. And it really took me years of (laughs) training in visual styles and film history and all that to realize like, wow, this is like a supremely excellent film. Um, And the only reason I really could develop that, um, I know, parasocial relationship with Dr. Lecter to begin with is because of Anthony Hopkins and and the characterization he puts into that person. Um, That person to me who is like, bad Frasier or like mean Frasier I mean that's what that's what I saw it as I look in back now and I'm like oh he's kind of a dick <laughs> like mm, he shouldn't have murdered all those innocent people um but he does it because they're rude he doesn't like rude people you know he it's for him it's not just it's not just uh you know this flagrant bloodthirstiness and come on he, that creeped Dr. Chilton he has it. He has yeah, it. Well, he deserved it. <laughs> Dr. Chilton deserved it. For it. From the minute he's on the screen, I forgot how instantly terrible that man is. Mm-hmm. He's also yeah. one of like a million so people well. hitting on Jodie Foster or checking her out throughout the entire film. I mean, there are so many little signals about this woman in a man's world. Mm-hmm. You know, she's being checked out at the academy. She's being checked out at the airport. Dr. Chilton is hitting on her in a, in such a, a scuzzy, creepy way. Um, that fabulous actor who's in, who's like Demi's lucky charm, Paul Lazar, who plays uh, the nerdy uh, entomologist at the Natural History Museum. Dr. Pilch. <laughs> yes, I love him. Suggesting, you know, yeah. to go have cheeseburgers and beer or try the amusing house wine. Um, you know, she's hit on for the entire film. She's, she's never really yeah. taken seriously as a as an FBI agent because she's a young woman. And so uh, Dr. Chilton is, the, is yeah. the worst offender. So I think he really has it coming for a whole lot of reasons. One hundred. I totally agree. I mean, you know why, like, you know why Dr. Lecter kills Miggs and that's because he assaulted Clarice. I mean, that's, he convinces Miggs to, to die by suicide because mm-hmm. he happened to, um, fling fluid at her in a way that like that scarred me for life reading that at 12 because i did not know what cum was <laughs> i need to applaud your alliteration right there that was amazing fluid <laughs> fling. do we think that Meg's slinging fluid was the inspiration for cameron diaz improvised hair product in <laughs> something about mary stay close to the right clarice <laughs> like i'm screaming at the movie stay close to the right um one more yeah. ha- uh semen as hair gel movie and we'll have a trilogy how many best picture winners involve someone getting cum thrown on them uh no not boogie nights (laughs) it's a good question (laughs) it didn't happen in green book i was i i am glad that you made the green book joke because i was about to and i was like no (laughs) someone else can have this one (laughs) It, it's so interesting to rewatch it. Well, obviously I'm a woman. Uh, I'm rewatching it as an adult and all of the sexism themes were just like totally lost on me at the height of my like baby feminist phase. It was just, oh, this is a scary movie. Now I'm like, holy shit. 
she's getting it from every angle. The fucking entomologist is hitting on her. What's like what's what is going on about that is that he's the only one that she kind of playfully like interacts yeah. with. Like he asked that and she's like, No, are you are you flirting with me? Are you asking me out? Like everyone else, she just kind of like gives an eye to and like tries to move on. I, I do think, like I think part of that tilting around a little bit. She charms him a little bit. You know, yeah, she but, has that sudden charm that she knows how to work. Oh yeah, but she, with Chilton, she's like trying to get what she wants. I don't know that. I don't know that that's the deal with the bug guy because he's not even the one who's doing the the work to try to figure out what the bug is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think like she actually likes him, but it, it is interesting to note that like he's the only one who even gets like a slightly playful banter back, and I don't know what that means. And um, we do see, see him. We we see the both of them later on at the at the kind of rap party or the yes. graduation ceremony at the end. So clearly she has I think like just watching it this time around, it struck me that they've had this back and forth before. Like this is not their first time. And oh, so like maybe they knew one another previously. Maybe or they they've he's hit on her before and she's quietly kind of rebuffed him a couple of times. And so he's just kind of keeping on with this kind of patter. But that's that's just how I saw it. They're bug nerds. So they're they're inherently less less uh, noxious than the guy running the asylum. Yeah, there's (laughs) a power dynamic. Buffalo Bill is also a bug nerd, and he is murdering and skinning people. So you know you never can tell with a bug nerd. I think they're the sweeter. Well, I think the part bug, of bug it spectrum. That's one hundred percent true. I yes. mean, the other men in the film are clearly uh, above her. You know, in terms of power, that's part of it. I mean, she just wants to do her job. With Doctor Pilch, it's like, oh, he's this like absolute dork that I have the power over in this sequence. So I feel like she she probably feels a little safer in that space. I mean, I have no idea if she feels attracted to him or not. That's, yeah. I don't, I think that's kind of beside the point is that it's, um, it's also clear, clear in that scene that they both admire her. Like they're, they're pretty amped mm-hmm. about the possibility of helping to solve a crime. So even though she's got the like power, yeah. I also just, because we are now talking about the Bugman, and I'm super happy we are, I just need to point out that, um, yeah, Pilcher is played by Paul Lazar. But Roden is played by Dan Butler, who, uh, fans of Frasier, uh, the good Frasier, not evil Frasier, is Bulldog. <laughs> Bob the Bulldog Briscoe. Mm-hmm. Sportscaster, right? Yeah, I saw him in this and I was just like, oh my god. It's so hard for me to see him as anything other than Bob Bulldog Briscoe. He also had a bit of a directing career, no? I, you know, that's a good question. and I, I think he does. I think he's one of, like, Ten directors who have little little cameo roles in this movie, including George Romero, I didn't even know until recently. So I only see him as he uh, he he did one episode of Frasier, and then a movie called Carl Rove, I Love You, and then he directed a short in 2012 called Pearl. Seriously, someone made a movie called Carl Rove, I Love You. I am, yeah. It's I mean I'm seeing it on IMDb. It's uh it is Election Year 24, no, 2004, a documentary on the unknown sporting actor. Takes a surprising turn when the lead of the film, Dan Butler, bulldog from the television series Frasier, becomes smitten with the idea of playing Carl Rove, President Bush's notorious senior advisor. I don't. This does, I mean, this doesn't sound like a good movie. 
All right. I don't know what to tell you. Interesting. <laughs> that is the weird directing career of Dan Butler. I, I love, though, that there are all these people, you know, as well as Paul Lazar, there's uh, Charles Napier, uh, Sergeant Boyle, who gets strung up like a Francis Bacon crucifix slash angel or whatever in, mm-hmm. in Memphis. And, uh, you know, there are a bunch of regular Demi people, but there's also, you know, just fabulous character actors like Diane Baker as as uh, Senator Martin. And I love Brooke Smith as Catherine Martin. Love oh, her. She's fabulous. Oh, bad girl attitude. I love how she's, you know, even when Jodie Foster's come to kind of get her out, she sort of leaves from it and she says, where are you going, you fucking bitch? Get me out of here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I, I just think the, the casting on this film would be so great. Even like Frankie Faison as Barney. The oh my God, Barney's the best. Yes. Barely has a line, but yet such a presence. And I think that's something Demi had, you know, just a way of noticing everybody in his movies, of giving them some yeah. kind of life going on outside the frame, outside of the script, outside of, you know, whatever was going on in that scene. The only good man in the movie. Barney. Barney. Frankie. Barney. <laughs> yeah. Barney. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I don't totally write off um, Agent Crawford. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of a point in his favor that when Clarice reprimands him for talking down to her as a mere girl in, in front of the, the cops, she, she sort of wraps him on the knuckles for it. And he says, you know, point taken, point taken. Yeah, he takes and the I, note. I think it's something that, that, you know, a trainee would say that to a, a supervising officer and, uh, and get away with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it does work. He's not, he's not bad, but... Yeah. He he throws her to the wolves. That's that's what I um, take away from that is that he's he's using her because she's young and hot and naive. And I don't think of that. I mean, it's complicated. It's not totally bad, but it. I, I wouldn't say that he's like a safe person in the way that I feel safe with Barney. But you yeah, know, I maybe mean, that's uh, he. Um, he kind of. I mean, like it's it's tough because the entire movie is predicated on they're using her as leverage in almost every situation she's in. But it is towards the purpose of saving lives. So, like, I don't know. You got to use you, you use the tools that you have, and sometimes people use those tools against your will. <laughs> I don't know. He gives her credit. He says, "You know, we would never caught him caught him without you." Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting because I think she would have if she was able to give her consent to be used in these ways, I think she would have given it. And so the fact that like, you know, they did kind of throw her at Lecter um, with that guise of, you know, uh, you know, doing this thing and, you know, with the idea that he may have known somebody, you know, connected to Buffalo Bill is one of those things where she's just like, Oh, like I didn't realize that. And he like very pointedly like lays it out. And he's like, look, if I told you this is why you were there, he would have sniffed that out and this would have gone nowhere. And so, you know, I, I don't see her mad about that thing. I see her mad about, you know, just not having that kind of information. But of course, I think she would be the first person that would agree with him that, okay, that was a smart move. Like it, it made sense and it worked. And so, you know, we can move on from there, but you know, uh, I, I think she's not beyond 
getting dressed up and and doing these things like it's it's notable how dressed up she does get to go see Lecter and it's not just simply because she it, you know th- that's not something that she would probably normally do right it's it's she's trying to kind of it looks like she's kind of feeding into that a little bit so well i i don't see it as a being a sexual commodity as much as you often dress up to project power um sure. i mean she's not necessarily especially going, women yeah. in in the especially women in this world, right? The power suits and stuff like that is definitely a yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you you don't wear lipstick because you want to attract a man. You wear lipstick because you want to look intimidating. And I mm-hmm. think that's how I read her in this scene is that she's dressed up so that she can, she's putting on the mask of professionalism or the mask of where, of being an FBI agent, She which she is not quite yet. Uh, she's, She's dressing up to be an upper middle class person that she aspires to be um, more so than the than the honeypot that I think Crawford wants her to be. Yeah, it's a very um, sensible, serious business suit, executive business suit, although pretty much off the rack as as Lecter. Oh, it's Marshall's all the way. Yeah. So it's not, I mean, he doesn't give her the supreme compliment that he gives to Senator Martin. Love this. Love suit. Suit. Oh my God. I'm never not going to say that to my husband. <laughs> that whole, that whole scene with that encounter with Senator Martin is just one of the great scenes. God. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, like the, the funny thing is you could say that about, about, I don't know, 16 other scenes in this movie. And it was yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Very uh, Bill, much so. Bill Graham, what are your general thoughts in this movie? We got sidetracked. So, yeah. so th- this is this is a fun one. You know, I, this is one of those movies that I definitely did not see when it got released. Um, I remember, you know, th- this was 1991. I was five years old. Uh, definitely did not see it when it got released. But uh, this was one of those early things that, like, the poster on the uh, VHS tape or the you know the the image on the vhs tape is just so iconic i remember walking past that thing at blockbuster 500 times you know and always being interested and always being like what the hell is this thing like you know the the death mask moth kind of looking out at you with these red eyes and i was just like this this movie looks wild so um it took me a while to see it uh i feel like unfortunately a lot of these films not that they turn into work but you always hear of them they're kind of always mentioned and you know it, it takes a little while to sit down and actually watch it, especially a movie like this. This is not something you want to watch cut up to pieces by TNT or something like that, right? You want to watch it from beginning to end in one kind of sitting. Um, so it doesn't have these kind of, it's brethren, at least in terms of, you know, uh, the horror films that are nominated for best picture, which include the exorcist jaws six cents black swan and get out right like 
maybe black swan doesn't doesn't quite have that kind of that pull but all the other ones would you know you could watch it with commercials and it would be just fine right um it would pull you through and this movie is so not slow but just so meticulous about what it's doing and still it is a tight and lean sub two-hour movie um so it it just does all the things that you would expect a film that has this kind of classic uh, narrative around it to do. Um, I think it's incredibly well acted. Um, I was struck by, I mean, uh, you know, I haven't watched this probably in a good five or six years. And I was just struck by how, young and fit anthony hopkins looks in this movie um it's it's wild because my perception of him as hannibal is mainly from the other films um where he's a little bit more filled out and a little bit less lean and a little bit older and things like that and he just looks so young and so different than what i'm used to seeing him as nowadays yeah and so i mean you you say like you say that but like most of the film he's either behind a glass cage or in a straitjacket so like even as i was looking at it this time with an eye towards that especially after having watched mads mickelson be this character Mm -hmm. i was still like uh, not blind to it but still had a hard time seeing his youth and his his athleticism because there's just when you're in a eight by eight room and then in a straight jacket and then you know like it he still doesn't get like a lot of acrobatic scenes in this movie no 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 i don't know i i'm with bill on this i think he looks very young in this movie and that's partially because he's been a very um active actor on screen for the last 30 years we Mm -hmm. are maybe our default or our tableau of anthony hopkins is you know, a little more grandfatherly to some degree. So seeing him in this role where, where he, um, I mean, his eyes are just so vi- there's vitality in, in mm-hmm. those blue eyes. I mean, um, it's true, but he's still like a little bit jowly. His hair is still thin. You know, there's just, there's just also, something about him that is still in my head. Like I can see how old does anyone know offhand how old he was when this movie came out? We can, I don't know how old, out I don't know how old he was, but I do know that this was it came along at a point where he had basically started to give up on a Hollywood career. Um, huh. You know, his his only significant he he'd done a bunch of crappy horror movies like Magic and things, and mm-hmm. uh, um, he had not been getting the parts that a classical a classically trained British stage actor should be getting. And um, so I think the the big exception to that was Elephant Man, in which he was playing a role he didn't find very interesting. One of about a million real life characters he's played. You know, he's played mm-hmm. way more, I think way more real life characters than fictional characters. So along comes this script that he really went for that everybody in the world had been considered for, um, you know, from De Niro, Pacino, Hoffman, um, 
God. Robert Duvall. Those would have been terrible. I would, no, but I would murder someone that I loved in order to see what Al Pacino did in this role. Oh, <laughs> he it was would have been, I I would have been Dick know? Tracy. It would have been Dick Tracy. And but, it would have been so over the you know, top. Even, even um, stage actors who we know much less of in, in America than, than Anthony Hopkins, like Derek Jacoby, were, uh, and Daniel Day-Lewis, who wasn't a name at the time, was considered. Um, you know, there were a lot. And this came along, he had basically gone back to England and was doing M. Butterfly on stage in London and thought, okay, I'm going to have a career doing stage work and the occasional BBC show and whatever, and Hollywood's done for me. So, you know, I think that it is relatively early in his life. So he is quite young compared to the Anthony Hopkins we see now. But, you know, this is before all those Merchant Ivory films. It's before Howard's End, before Remains of the mm. Day, before those films that really did start to put him on the map. But, but Silence of the Lambs was the Kickstarter for him to get his screen career going and put some, put some uh, fumes behind it. And uh, the thing that strikes me is how incredibly young Jodie Foster looks. I mean, when she walks into, she's, she's, oh out, God, yeah. she's out doing her training thing. She gets the call to go see Jack Crawford. She goes into the office and is waiting for him. And her eyes, as she turns around and sees the Buffalo billboard with all the, all the information and her eyes just widen. You think, Jesus Christ, you look so young. Well, she was a veteran at that time. That's like the wacky thing is that she probably had more on-screen experience than Hopkins. Yeah. Just because yeah. she started when she, you know, she was the copper tone baby or whatever. I mean, yeah. it, it is incredible. She does look very young um, in that film, but I kept thinking like, eh, I've seen her younger. <laughs> yeah. I've well, taxi it. driver, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The little girl that lives down the lane. <laughs> Alice doesn't live here anymore. Uh, yeah. Anthony Hopkins was born December 31st of 1937. So he was 50. Yeah, he was like 52 probably he looks younger than that i would no, have he said does 38 not. this is madness no he would have, i would have said 38 because no, he has that dark on. gray hair it, you don't know I enough don't men know. in their 50s robin <laughs> i know a lot of men in their late early 30s <laughs> it, it, it is it is interesting that you're you're mentioning that because you know i see here bram stoker's dracula is in 92 um you know legends of the fall meet joe black and then he's got mask of zorro in 98 right before you know the the turn of the the century at that time so you know that's it's it's so interesting to think that you know, one of our, it really, I guess, put him on the map, but it really kind of brought him and, you know, pulled him back into this kind of this light, I guess, in a way. Yeah. What I'm, so like, I guess what I'll say is to, to wrap up the, is Anthony Hopkins old looking in this? I've become very used to movies that I saw when I was a child going back and watching them and then being like oh shit i'm older than that character now you know <laughs> like oh i'm a kid it's like wow that's like a real adult like even don draper in the first season of Mad Men, there's a scene where he's at the doctor and they say how old he is and i'm older now than he was well how old was he because i'm I don't 32 know. but he i mean i think he was like 29 or something it was it was nuts. that is bullshit no no anyway but I so don't. this is the rare <laughs> movie where i've gone back and seen it and can still say, oh, I've still got like 20 years before I'm as old as Hannibal Lecter. Wow. I That's how you're boosting you, yourself. <laughs> so, so what you're saying, Brian, is you got time. Yeah, I can, I can get as fit as Anthony Hopkins. Um, he's got it. You know, it, it's also weird just because the way he's wardrobed is very strange. Like the pants are very high waisted. He's in that 
he has an elfin look in that movie. Yeah. I, I don't think he's got a lot of choices, a lot of fashion well, no. choices. I think I think he <laughs> I think that he's probably well, he, very upset about that. He escapes the orange jumpsuit. The basic yes. white, I think, is a is a choice. It's very mm-hmm. it's 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 funny because like you're not you're not supposed to wear white if you want to look slimming, but he looks slim in it. So clearly Bill is right. He's he's got a good athletic frame in this movie. Okay, I want to go back to this idea of the athletic frame because one of the many plot holes, or I don't even know if you call them plot holes, but like sort of neat, um, these neat threads that are being pulled in this movie to make it all beautifully embroidered is the fact that we're supposed to believe that in a very short period of time, he has physically strung up an adult man in, in an, an angel pose. I mean, it's a great visual. It's a great like shock. I, yeah. I'm all for it. But I kept thinking, I don't, I don't really buy that he did this. Well, that scene is also taken... somehow configured all that incredible cathedral-like lighting. Yes! Oh my god! Yeah, well, so here's exactly. The thing. It's will... a work of art. Not that the movie needs me to stand up for it, but I will say that 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 scene does not take place in real time, and it's very clear that all the police officers in the lobby level of this museum that he's being held in for some reason, I guess, um, <laughs> they have no idea what's going on until he starts moving that elevator. So he yep. could have killed those people like two hours ago. Oh, yeah, they'd be I, yakking I away and having hours. cigarettes for hours. I, think. Yeah. I believe that it's several hours, but still, it's like you did this by yourself. You had to have like the tools. How did you get up there? He is I mean, there incredibly were just, like, so smart, many man. things. <laughs> yeah, but is he physically strong? Is that's what I want to know. I guess he is. You know? You're wondering where he got the crane. That's that's what you want to know. <laughs> I did, yeah. I, I did I did wonder why they were keeping him in a museum. Um I don't know. It doesn't really matter that but much. It's all a metaphor. Yes. He's a specimen. <laughs> this is true. Oh, that is true. Bill, I was gonna ask you, you know, you know you were talking about the poster and how iconic that is. Have mm-hmm. you ever looked really closely at the Death's Head moth? Because the The Dali the, painting. Yeah, right? it's a Dali painting. So if you look really, really closely at it, you will see that the frame of the skull is made up of bodies. It's the it's it's the same thing that they did on the um, poster for the descent. Basically, it's that they're they're referencing that same image of the women making a skull, right? I think so. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I've never I haven't seen the descent, but I think. Oh my God, it. Robin! What? This is like the third week in a row you guys have mentioned the descent. Yeah, because it's essential viewing. <laughs> All right, I I will I will consider that. Um, we um, had a podcast on the descent last year. Uh, yeah, I know you keep you guys have mentioned. Oh it, Jesus so. Christ! Okay, yeah, I, would, I see this for now. Your benefit wow. was for the benefit of listeners who may be like, yeah, the descent ruled. Anyway, um, I, as for me and my thoughts on Sun Slams, I have always liked this movie. It's weird because I'm pretty sure the first time I saw any of it was on accident, because um, I was like three when this movie came out um and and i know that i i have seen parts of it um you know either just from clips or something but i know that at some point my parents or some relative was watching it and i know i saw the night vision thing and i know i i know i saw the end of it because i didn't understand why it was so grimly funny that he said he was having an old friend for dinner um, but it, it took me a while from those childhood snippets to actually see this when I was like a teenager. And then I haven't really seen it 
since then, I'm sure once I watched it drunk with some people in college, because I was a drunk, but I was also still a movie lover, goddammit. Um, so it was interesting coming back to it this time, because like between seeing parts of it when I was a kid, and then just watching it as kind of a piece of pulp entertainment as a teenager, I got a lot more out of it this time. And it's, I mean, like, I always still thought it was great. Like, it's obviously a great movie. But it was just, it, I realized how much I, my my thoughts on it were informed completely incorrectly. Because when you're a child and you see all these men staring at Jodie Foster, one of the first moments you get where she's with other people is when she steps into the elevator and she's like a foot shorter than everyone else. And so as a child who doesn't really know anything about, like, sexism or the way that men look at women with desire... I was just like, yeah, she is short. I guess everyone keeps looking at her because she's short. I literally, just as a kid, constantly thought it was a commentary on her physical diminutiveness in a world of, like, violence where power is the most insane, like, you know, important thing you could have. And so this time, with the full knowledge of a fully developed human brain that has observed, like, the world, I was able to actually see, like, oh, like, a lot of this is... Not just because she looks out of place, it is because they enjoy looking at her, and that informs a lot more. Um, I, also... I will I will want to step back just for a second because I think it's not you're looking at it not just from the lens of being a kid, but being a boy kid. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes a difference because little girls, like that kind of stuff is a very water is wet thing. Like yeah. maybe I as a kid or whatever, didn't understand all the dynamics of sex and power and voyeurism and all that kind of stuff. But it did grow up in a world where Jean Benet Ramsey, her murder was a thing. And I think one of the reasons for me that I didn't register the sexism as much as I did now, you know, in my early thirties is because it was just such a thing that I expected. And so when I was watching it, it was just like, okay, yeah, this is, this is what she deals with. She has cum thrown on her. People look at her. Even the entomologist is hitting on her. Like that stuff was just, it kind of like, it was just slicked off me because I would just, it was so expected and so obvious. Yeah. Um, and for me as like an awkward, you know, boy in like the single digits of his life who had no concept of any of that. It just didn't. Uh, so so Jean Benet was 96, Christmas of 96, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I didn't see this movie until I was older, but I just in terms of like watching it with the um, that that brain, I think there is like little girls or whatever would would watch it with a different sort of expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a movie that I don't want to misquote. And so I'm not going to say what the actual quote is, but basically at some point someone says something to that effect, like 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 girls grow up faster because they have to mm-hmm. it's gonna bug the shit out of me now that i can't remember a movie that's from because it's a great line and it's a great movie or maybe it's a tv show doesn't matter let's move on um before i get bogged down in my own lack of recollection i will say the other thing that really struck me this time is i always remember thinking that the the classic demi looking down the barrel of the lens was kind of a um an obvious trick I guess is the way to put it. And but I think all it's... of that direct-to-camera stuff works so well in this movie. It oh my god, it does. Than it has anywhere. I mean, and it really does put you inside the character and give you her perspective on things. Right. Um, and 
and as a teen, you know, I was just like, right, yeah, he's just he's putting the camera where you would be if you were the person who this person is talking to. But like again, grown up now with much more knowledge of you know cinematic language and also just like interpersonal relationships, it occurs to me now like it's not just an easier way of doing a shot reverse shot because now you can just have someone looking in the camera and like, Oh, isn't it weird? It's like, you're the guy, but like you can read so much into these characters by the way they're interacting with the camera. That is the point of view of the other person. It's just like, the night vision scene. Oh my God. And th- I mean, there hadn't been a lot of night vision, see- great night vision scenes in thrillers at that point. So, you know, that was something relatively uh, knew he was doing i think doing Are very there, well. I mean, even now I, I can't think of many i got like this and sicario spring to mind and that's about it mm. yeah i'm sure there yeah. must be much more i i mean there's there's a scene in hollow man that kind of replicates this a little bit but, oh, but um, yeah yeah i mean that's yeah <laughs> infrared or whatever yeah. but no uh, you know i think i think uh What's the other one? Uh, Predator Two has has some of that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think I don't want to get too bogged down into it. But uh, that night vision stuff is is really really thrilling and interesting to see on screen. I remember that sequence lasting so much longer. I thought she was in darkness for so much longer than Me she is. Yeah, I yeah. I think a lot of this film has because of its age by now but also just because so many sequences are so iconic you think they last a lot longer this reminds me a lot of like you know those classic stories of psycho where you know audiences were like freaked out and were assured that they saw so much blood and gore and it you know you go back and you watch it and you're like no there's hardly any of that like you you don't see anything and people were like what no i saw it and so hopkins is only on screen for 16 minutes but you feel like he's on screen because he is he is the lead actor in the film he is the heart of the film in so many ways or the brain of the film Mm -hmm. yes one of the shorter shorter male lead performances to win the best actor oscar yeah it's Mm -hmm. pretty incredible so i i agree with you bill i mean it's there's so much this this film is so zippy and yet you feel like the scenes just not drag on, but they, they, they propel, they're propulsive uh, in a way that you don't, it, it's just like sits in your brain. And mm-hmm. a lot of that, not exclusively, but a lot of that is also Howard Shore's fantastic score mm-hmm. that just drives everything along all the way through. It's churning away so, through so much of the film in such a dynamic way. Um, I mean, I saw the. I was already a grown ass man when I saw the film. I saw mm-hmm. it in uh, the the one English language theater in Rome, uh, in Italy that didn't have uh, dubbed versions that actually showed original language. So I saw it at a sparsely attended uh, screening, and there were some screams. I just remember being very tense and uh, fists, hands balled into fists for the entire second half of the movie, and. Um, I feel like I've had this relationship with that movie over the years. You know, I, I've seen it. Uh, I saw it again when I was reviewing the parody musical that we mentioned earlier. Um, and I watched it again just a couple of nights ago and was just astonished at how well it, it's, it, it holds up. It moves along. The pacing is great. Um, I don't find it slow at all. I think, you know, as you said, it's, it's lean and tight. And, um, but I had, um, these different encounters with the movie because I was still living in Italy and working in the, in the industry covering uh, the film industry for variety. 
um, when Dino De Laurentiis, very um, flamboyant Italian producer, uh, there was a big showman, a real showman, and he um, was producing Hannibal, the not very good sequel with Julianne Moore's Clarice. And uh, he had a big press conference for that, which we were all trucked up to Florence for. And we all went to one, one of the most beautiful big rooms at the Uffizi with the painted ceilings and everything. And there was Anthony Hopkins and Julianne Moore and Giancarlo Giannini and uh, God, who directed that movie? Ridley Scott. Ridley I think. Scott, yes, Ridley mm -hmm. Scott. Anyway, and we did all our one-on-ones and whatever it was the standard junket. And you know, I kind of forgot about. It. Went to see them and we went, eh, that was pretty bad. You know, it's just it's such a shadow of this movie. And and, all, and even of Manhunter, the Michael Hunt, the Michael Mann um, mm -hmm. Lecter movie that came before. But and then. Uh, Months and months and months later, I was still in Rome. I was at the time, as well as Variety, I was doing a radio show on the public broadcaster there. And they were doing a junket in Rome for Hannibal. And I got there, was one of the last interviews of the day. And this poor shaken woman from the London publicity team came out and said, I'm sorry, but Anthony is in a foul mood. He's been <laughs> unspeakable to everybody. And I thought, I'm oh, great. You know, I had plenty of experiences with pissed off stars behaving like demons before. And I went in and talked about Florence, talked about the first question was, you know, talking about Florence and talking about Hannibal Lecter coming back to Florence and how all of that beautiful Florentine architecture had influenced him. And it was on the, the walls of his his cell in Silence oh, of yeah. the Lambs. Oh, and, yeah. You know, he was this sophisticated, cultured man who chilled out before a murder by humming along to the Goldberg variations. And he just went. He loved the question. He was so great. The, the um, publicists were like, thank you so much. Can we just... Can we print out your 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 uh, interview and use it as a handout to people? Because we don't think we'll ever get that from him again. I, what do I you think, think it was about the question that that drew uh, him out? Uh, look, I love Italy. I spent a lot of time in Italy, but there are some crazy ass film journalists in Italy. <laughs> questions are bonkers, and mm. I think he has no patience, no tolerance for fools. Um, uh, he. This was probably, you know, I think for someone like him, a junket is is your your legitimate nightmare. And I think he probably yeah. had a really shitty day, long day. He probably had seen a cut of the film, if not the release print. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm sure he'd know. He'd, he mm. would have seen the release print by then. He probably knew it wasn't terribly good. Uh, so he was just, you know, fulfilling his part of the contract. And, and that was it. But, you know, it was a, actually a great interview. Um, and... You know, such a smart guy, so erudite, so learned. And he had looked into so many peripheral aspects of Hannibal that are not on screen. Yeah. But, you know, I, I love this character. I, you know, I think that this character is obviously the role model for Kevin Spacey's entire career till that one. <laughs> but, you know, the way he within five minutes has kind of dissected her outfit, gotten a read on, on her background, found her vulnerabilities and making fun, mocking her accent. And, and uh, you know, it's a really great character. That scene is so great. And you feel that relationship immediately and you want that relationship. And it's, that is one of the weird deceptive things about the film is that they have so few scenes together, such a short amount of screen, screen time. And yet that is the real takeaway. So that brings me to a question that I have, which I never really kind of got before, but we, we already know that Buffalo Bill uh, is a 
really complicated character culturally within the film um, because they, they, he, I guess he, James Gum is, is a he, may or may not be tran transgender. It's, it's definitely a question the film brings up. But my question is, is, is Hannibal Lecter subtextually queer? Like, did, is that what you read into the character? Um, because I think there's so many little marks of him that, it, that, you know, obviously it's not explicit, it's not textual, but I think they want us to think that he is this like highfalutin, dapper, um, almost like a fop type character, but is that what other people took away? I, um, I thought about this a lot watching it the other night. I thought is, is Hannibal, first of all, I thought is he asexual? Because it seems like the, the closest he gets to a sexual thrill is when he's bringing down that baton on the yeah. one of the officers in in Memphis. Yeah. It's, it's something very sexual about the way he's lashing into that. And it's the but, look on his face. He just but, looks very pleased with himself. Yes. <laughs> but I think that's more the libidinous thrill of a kill yeah. rather than anything, mm -hmm. any any actual sexual impulse toward the, the human in front of him. And I don't ever think there's anything explicitly sexual in the relationship with Clarice. There maybe was more so in the in the kind of bad Julianne Moore sequel um but and in the book there definitely was in Hannibal yeah, um, yeah but which I, I just write off but I just think Hopkins chooses to play it that way and mm. um I do think the whole I mean we have to talk obviously about the controversy the the backlash from the LGBTQ community when the movie came out about what was perceived as transphobic representation and I think to contextualize it uh, it came along at a time when there weren't that many representations of queer characters in mainstream commercial Hollywood releases. And so, yes, you can understand the objection at that point, but they're very specific in the movie that he is a sociopath. Jim, Jim Gum is a, is a, is a sociopath, a, a maladjusted sociopath. He is not, they, they don't, nobody believes he is a legitimately transsexual as they call him in the in the language of the time uh transgender character he's been turned down for gender reassignment surgery at the three major centers in the u.s that do that um on psychological grounds that he isn't a candidate you know he's not a legitimate candidate but he's convinced himself that's what he is and which is I, problematic quote unquote a word i fucking hate and i would try never to use and you did it anyway i did it anyway <laughs> but i think about this too i because i'm totally in agreement agreement with you david that like the character is not, uh, they explicitly say, this is a person that likes to uh, escape from their own self and maybe mm -hmm. does this through uh, qu queering or, or be, being another gender. But I keep thinking back in my mind, yeah, any trans person could be turned down for surgery because somebody doesn't believe that they are trans. I mean, it, it, it's these elements that I'm sure they did not specifically put in this film that I think about 30 years later is like how many people have been denied gender confirmation surgery or even have people not believe that they are trans but, um the, the and I know that's I'm, not the point of the film I like I, yeah. I I I recognize that but it's still kind of like it bugs me a little bit and I think like okay there the argument is that this is not a trans character because they say he isn't trans or she, she I don't I, again, it's hard to say, but how many people have been uh, not believed that they're actually trans? I think you're making 
100% valid points. And yes, if we want to use the word problematic, it is it is problematic. I think maybe less so now because- I hate that have, word. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to have queer representation, you have to have queer representation across the spectrum. You can't just have everybody be kind of yeah. saintly and an ideal poster boy, poster child, poster trans person. Um, but I think that- um, you know, what What I find really uh, slightly heartbreaking about this is that Demi, I think, was totally unprepared for that reaction. He, you know, was the most liberal-minded um, human rights activist kind of person you could ever encounter. You know, um, he was involved in so many causes from apartheid to uh, Haitian democracy to, you know, yeah. clean up after Katrina. Um, you know, very, very much a human rights champion. And I, I knew him a little bit in New York. I had done a number of Q and A's with him. I saw him quite often at the theater and, you know, just the nicest, nicest man, always stopped to talk, always remembered your name, always remembered your partner's name. I mean, he had great conversations with my partner that, um, and it's not something you expect from an A-list Hollywood director, but yeah. wherever I ran into him, he would always stop and talk. And I mean, I think the last time I saw him was a couple of years before his death, uh, we were at uh, Here Lies Love, the David Byrne, Fatboy Slim mm. musical about Imelda Marcos at the Public Theater. And Demi What a combo. In- that is <laughs> yeah. a sentence. That is a hell of a sentence. It was a fucking amazing show. It was a dance musical, an immersive dance musical where the actors were moved around on platforms. The audience was kind of shuffled around. And David Byrne was in the audience in one little pocket. Jonathan Demi was in the other. And it took me back because my... One of my first nights in the United States in 1983, I went to the Stop Making Sense concert in San Francisco a week or two before they filmed it in LA. And so, you know, I had such associations with Demi and Jonathan and uh, um, David Byrne. Yeah. And there they were kind of bopping away like like <laughs> kids. And, you know, at the end of it, Demi was hanging around to talk to David Byrne. So he said hi and we were chatting and he ended up in a long conversation with my partner about shooting Roger Corman films in Indonesia. And he, I mean, just the sweetest, nicest, most open-hearted man. And it kind of breaks my heart to think of him getting, feeling the heat of that backlash. And he's the, the least deserving person of it. I just, I just don't think he ever intended to offend anyone. And I know that's not an excuse, but whenever I think about that, or I think about the kind of uh, objections of the queer community to mm-hmm. the lack of physical love in Philadelphia. I think he really set out to make a film about AIDS. He had lost friends to AIDS. And again, he was unprepared for the fact that a lot of gay gay people, th- gay men thought, this is not a real relationship. We kind of have a chase mm-hmm. peck on the cheek with Anthony, Antonio Banderas and Tom Hanks. Yeah. You know, need something more physical. And, and, you know, I think he was doing what he could do within a studio environment in that film. So I don't know. I'm a staunch defender of Jonathan Demme as a, a great uh, advocate for human rights of all kinds. I really find it hard to believe that he would have wanted to um, shortchange anybody on the queer spectrum in any of his films. Well, so that's that's what kind of struck me, because, again, as a child and even as a teenager, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it. Because, like, in my head, it's just it's it's a pulpy story and your killer if they're going to be weird needs a reason to do something so like there's a movie there's a book called uh birdman by uh a, an english author named mo hater i think she's english don't quote me on that he said onto a podcast um <laughs> but like 
what like they're finding these dead women um who are you know filled with heroin and then uh, have birdstone inside their chests and at a certain point they find out that like one guy is is getting off killing prostitutes and then selling the body to someone else who just wants to sew a live bird into their chest so he can pretend it's their heartbeat as he does unspeakable things to them and it's like there's some dumb reason why he does that i think it was related to his mother you know it was a good book but clearly not one that has stuck with me since i read it in high school uh fully but it's like yeah you just need a reason that someone wants to murder people in an interesting way but then i saw it this time and you know having all that context and stuff i'm like yeah is this gonna come off as kind of icky but like they do really go into like it's a it's a fairly long you know not not that any part of this movie is super stretched out but it's a fairly long conversation wherein the world's most genius psychologist says like he might think he is, but he's not. Like the, the the key indicators that we know of there are not there. And like as we have moved out of the '90s and into today, where basically it's like positive affirmation only, it does become harder to say if someone truly is or truly isn't. Um, but at the same time, like yeah, it just like he he doesn't he's not trying to live life as not a man he seems to be waiting to put on the magical i was gonna say cloak but literally like the magical skin suit that's gonna make his life different and better and like they make a big point in the movie of that and i think that like that's a so it's 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 a razor thin distinction maybe and especially for 1991 when there were probably no mainstream representations of, of I, trans yeah. people like that's like it doesn't even matter <laughs> i mean if i think yeah, about I, the I, equivalent I'm, I'm not i'm not uh wanting to invalidate any trans person's objections to the movie particularly mm-hmm. at that time oh yeah um, yeah but at the same time you know i'm i i was certainly there when cruising came out and in mm-hmm. the, uh, gay men were were absolutely aghast at the way they were they were portrayed and the way gay sexuality was portrayed as this incredibly aggressive nasty kind of sleazy thing and you know it was obviously specifically about the snm community in new york but you know there was a there was a taint to that film that wasn't pretty and i certainly felt the sting of that and i think the same way uh it was no almost nobody saw the movie but windows of a thriller with uh talia shire and i can't remember who else uh, that was just the sleaziest lesbian psycho movie. And <laughs> there were a lot of movies like that that really did get under people's skin yeah. for yeah. good reason. I, you know, I'm inclined to give Silence of the Lambs a bit of a pass just because it's so smart in so many ways. And it's just, it's such a beautifully directed film and it is pulpy, but it's also elevated and um, complex. And, well, you know, the I characters was, have real texture and depth to them. I was even about to say that. It's, it, it's almost a victim of being too smart for the time. Because it's wandering in here like everybody knows what trans people are like, right? And if we make this distinction, it's going to pass and everyone will understand. And meanwhile, like 99% of America is just like, oh, he wants to be a woman. And it's like, no, we literally had a giant part of the movie that it was not about that. But then you do look around and you're like, oh, I might be like 20 years ahead of the culture in thinking that like people are going to understand these very like fine line distinctions. Um, yeah, it's very. It is very nuanced. That's my bad. <laughs> I've also seen the theory somewhere that there was, uh, you know, a, a pocket of the LGBTQ community that was kind of 
you know, it just that was slightly pissed, I guess, that Jodie Foster was a very, very famous person in the closet at that point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, that we all knew about um, with whatever degree of certainty. But and, and maybe that fed into it. But yeah, I mean, I think to some reason that for, to some extent that's gone away now. The movie is taken on its own terms. And uh, yeah. But, yeah, it's. It, 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 I, I think David is right, though, that like just the sheer amount of representation at this time period, it just isn't there. And so, of course, this is going to catch fire and kind of, you know, light up that that kind of, uh, you know, pushback from a lot of people that aren't seeing them themselves represented in the one, you know, uh, person that is being personified by this kind of thing on screen you know whether accurately or inaccurately you know uh that's what a lot of audiences are going to take away from that and so i think that's that that's going to be the biggest issue with just about any kind of representation uh moving forward you know the more we kind of broaden our horizons especially as as you know american film audiences and and you know we just talked about raya we just talked about uh minari i mean you know these are very important films partly because they are kind of bringing that representation to to the foreground which is unfortunate you know wh- where has it been for so long um you know it it just sucks and so you know i, I think the pushback now would have you know would have been a, a very different thing with this film um but you know I don't know. It, it, it's just one of those things where it's, it's just tough to kind of get a sense of what was wrong about it back then that also still kind of carries over to today's world. Well, and, uh, it, you know, it's impossible to take that context away. One of the things I always say is like, if the only movie that was ever made about Italian Americans was Goodfellas, people would be terrified of going to Howard Beach, Queens. Like, you know, it's just it's not like, you know, it's the way it is. But like, luckily, there are a lot of them. And so you do have to have movies that don't have people being psycho killers, uh, can say. Um, yeah. But yeah. And I think that goes back to what David was saying, too, which is to have a full spectrum of representation. You can't just have saintly characters. And I think there actually tends to be more of that fairy godmother approach to trans characters or um, gender non-conforming characters than there is the, the the villainous way. Like we think of the villains, but I actually think what's more harmful is almost like this this version of um of of a of the trope, uh, kind of a, a analogous to like the magical Negro trope, which is you see a trans character that only exists to charm mentor right uh, and then, like people walk out of the theater being like, oh trans people or like yeah, oh, it's a kind of magic they're fairy. all angels <laughs> well that's i the mean thing. there's the- I, you, I i can't I, I don't know how you i can't even remember the name of it but that film that uh philip seymour hoffman made with, yeah i was with just Robert thinking Niro. of that one uh, cringe God, material. what is that movie called? And he's, this, he's this mopey kind of um uh, trans ca- character living in the same building as Robert De Niro. I barely remember it. I it's. I know exactly what you're talking I never, about. I never no saw a second time. It's. I mean, you'll find it. It's terrible. It's. Uh, you know. I. I mean. There's also been, unfortunately, played by. There'd be very few great trans characters played by trans actors. 
Um, well, yes, that yeah. is another big problem. One of the reasons I love Tangerine, the Sean Baker film, is is just the great. Uh, you know, they're playing sex workers, but they're playing them with such dignity and such depth of character and such heart. I love the two actresses in that. And uh, uh, but you know, my, one of my favorites is is Carmen Maura as a trans character in mm. uh, Law of Desire. Uh, the way she reveals to the priest, she used to sing as a, uh, he's re recalling some, the glorious voice of some choir boy. And she says, yes, father, that was me. Um, uh, flawless. The movie was flawless, by flawless, the way. Flawless, yes. And yeah. it was deeply flawed. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know, anyway. I, I have not seen, so um, I have not seen most of Pedro Almodovar's movies, but having listened to Ingu Kang and Daniel Schroeder's, or Schroeder's, um, all about Almodovar, especially David's episode. I feel like I know these characters. <laughs> I haven't seen these films yet. They're on my list, but I, need to I get on that, agree Robin. with you. I'm getting on it. It's like my next foreign <laughs> film, I think. In, um, it, no, but, but before we wrap up that, that little theme, I mean, I will just say, as a gay man who grew up in a certain era, I certainly understand the hunger for good representation or representation of any kind. You know, there was a period when many of us just felt completely invisible. And I'm sure for the trans community, that was even more acutely felt. I mean, you know, I grew up thinking, God, Uncle Arthur on Bewitched, that's the best I get. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, they were, they were subliminally gay characters. They weren't openly gay. Or if they were openly gay, they were tragic figures who had to die or had to be miserable and alone and whatever. Right. You know, it was a long, long time before a joyful gay character came along that celebrated his, his sexuality or her sexuality and, um, and that lived it comfortably and was part of a healthy relationship and all of that. So, you know, I understand the rejection of it and I understand the, the resistance to it, but I do think this is a B-movie thriller. You know, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's not... It's not social realism. This is not a Ken Loach movie. <laughs> oh my God. It, Ken Loach yes. making this movie would be just nuts. Um, I will say that like, so the arc of marginalized groups in popular culture seems to go like, you're a villain and then you become the sainted martyr and then you got to hang out in there for like 15 years and yep. then you get to be like a normal human being and then you get to be the villain again, but this time it's fucking awesome. Like this time you're this time you're the uh, the Silva in Skyfall, right? Because then it's just like, yeah, that fucking rat speech, that shit yes. rules. Mm -hmm. So I I've only it. seen one Bond movie. Which one? Um, the Halle Berry one. Oh my god! Oh Jesus Christ! Well, that was the first one I saw, and it was so bad I never wanted to see oh, another is that, one. Is that a Daniel no, Craig no or a pre Daniel? Craig? No, that's, no, that's, that's Pierce Brosnan. The last Brosnan. That's sad. It might be. She yeah. plays yeah. Jinx. Not the finest Bond. No. <laughs> she had a look. Okay. But like everything else was terrible. Okay. Since we're talking about Wild, Wild Bill, Buffalo Bill, and who he is, uh, this is the first time I noticed. And maybe it's because I like. So I went on Amazon to rent this movie. And then I realized that for $1 more, I could own it, which is a <laughs> marketplace decision I do not understand. But so I got the UHD and I'm watching it. And this time I'm like, critical eye really going to focus in did anyone else notice that buffalo bill has a quilted double swastika yes blanket? yes yes what, he, he's, what he's got he's got uh nazi insignia 
Uh huh. He's got Nazi insignia somewhere else. I can't remember where it where it also appears. But yeah, I noticed the gold uh, embroidered uh, Nazi uh, swastika there on the on the bed sheet yeah, at he some flips point. Up the bed sheet to like grab the gun, and I'm just like, I didn't see that, and so I like you know skipped back and then paused. And I was like, yeah, that's that's two swastikas. Mm-hmm. What is happening? Like, if he had survived, he would have been in the January sixth Capitol raid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there were queer Nazis. Um it there was like a weird Well, I mean he's white, right? So Right. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> what is yeah. that weird tattoo, the sort of dripping elephant tusk thing? What that I wasn't I you know, I I was curious about that because it's like is it is it um there's a couple of things that I thought because, like, I'm a Catholic, so we have a lot of uh, iconography that deals with like the chest and bleeding. So I was like, is that like the rib removed from Adam to make woman, or is that like the spear wound that Jesus got when he was on the cross to prove that he was dead, or Caesar that got stabbed in his back? But that was the back. No, the rib like thing right I rib. like though. Mm. Because of it, it, the film's all about transformations. But it looks more to, more. Uh, like a tusk to me then it did but there was blood coming off of it and i was like it could be a wound it could be like a thing that's peeled back like i didn't i don't know i don't know it's very weird nipples are a real motif that i never noticed before watching it this time they do talk about nipples a lot and he has the most aggressive nipple piercing that i've ever seen yeah (laughs) just a very large nipple piercing yeah i agree also yeah yeah tweaking it a little bit and that the scene the, the i'd fuck me scene yeah, like that's the whole thing. I just kept watching and thinking, this is where I could see people being offended <laughs> by the, the gender politics of this movie. <laughs> like, I, it's obviously done to to shock you. Like you said, it's a pulp film. It's a it's a B film, and so you have to kind of take those to take those thrills. But I kept thinking, so, oh, I can see why this is hurtful for people. <laughs> so what's interesting to me that kind of just uh, just occurred to me now as we're talking about this, which is one of the reasons I love doing this podcast. Um, because otherwise, I'm just a guy who watched Silence of the Lambs alone randomly one Saturday night and never talked about it. Um, he, when he's saying that, he's not talking about feeling complete as a person. He's literally thinking about the way that the world will look at him and desire him. And he's only ever been rejected by the world. So, like, mm-hmm. it becomes a very selfish exteriorized kind of of desire for him it doesn't it's it's not something that's going to make him feel whole it's going to something that's going to make him feel maybe like accepted in the way that like people keep looking at jodie foster's character if he's the person who's only ever been looked at with like hatred he might grow to envy being looked at with anything that could be mistaken for affection even if it's like just the desire to fuck you Mm. This is so why do you kill Benjamin Raphael? <laughs> I, I wanna I wanna pivot away from this just a little he's also bit. Just, just a violent person, I think, is is one of the other things. Like you know, the, if he wasn't a violent person, he'd have a lot of hard time killing and skinning people. Wait, Bill, <laughs> before you pivot away, can I just ask one other tiny irrelevant detail question? Since yes. Brian Brian just threw his in, did anyone else notice that when Hannibal calls Jodie Foster from wherever she is, wherever he is in the Caribbean? And he's watching Chilton 
step off the plane. Did anyone notice the little fly on his head? Yes. It's like the precursor yeah. to the Mike Pence fly. <laughs> <laughs> the dancing fly. I, mean, I wonder if that was. I wonder if. Do you think it was just it happened and De- Demi said let's leave it there or oh, so oh, like yeah. I'm gonna say the fly trainer is just like <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> this is Reggie he's really great at close ups this is a mid shot oh, okay well, this is <laughs> um, so I had a few thoughts of that because that seems like one of those things that might have happened on accident and then they chose to leave it in because it was either a a great take or b they realized that like it it's it's said a lot like you know because like flies are drawn to corruption and decay and that's hannibal's mind in a nutshell well they represent death yeah it could also be a a a, an ode to psycho where at the end of the movie he's like i'm not even gonna swat at this fly and they're gonna see how nice i am like hannibal doesn't waste his energies trying to kill a fly because he's got to really save it all for children also he's got a big fly in the trap oh my god the the wig with the hair the wig is epic the wig is like Javier Bardem's hair in his <laughs> Okay. Javier Bardem has uh, a lot of airtime on this podcast. Yes, yeah. yes. Surprisingly, surprisingly. Yeah, we're going to have to get uh, Robin to see the the whole Daniel Craig, what, what is it, quadrilogy by now? I, th- I think it's about to be five. Um, but the the scene that I wanted to talk about a little bit is is the camera work here. And, um, you know, our, our previous guests definitely wanted to – mention talk fujimoto um and you know his work in this film but i was really struck by the sequence when she first comes to interview or no not not the first time it's the second time when he does the quid pro quo and every time that he's asking a question about her he is not looking at her instead he's turned away mm-hmm. back towards the camera further into his cell that's kind of he's kind of looking at the audience in this way um and i was struck by the fact that when he's talking to her when she's asking the questions and he's answering he's turned back towards her and it's it's this beautiful subtle thing of him looking away from her i guess in a way i'm not sure if that's his inclination that he's not going to embarrass her and like stare her down while she comes up with these answers to these questions right that are, are deeply personal and prying but you know, is it also something else? And, you know, I just found it a fascinating way to kind of separate when he is kind of taking the reins and when he's kind of letting go and, you know, him turning this kind of pivot every single time, you know, he's questioning and answering. And I, I, I just really, really, it's one of those subtle things that, you know, you don't pick up on until you watch a film a second time, usually, especially for me. But it's it's one of those beautiful sequences that just shows just a, a level of craftsmanship in where they place that camera and what they do with it. Yeah. So, I mean, Sakuramoto's work in this is amazing because a lot of this movie is very dark, but to still mm-hmm. draw out so much atmosphere from it because like oh like, let's underexpose it let's underlight it that sounds really easy but it's also very easy to make it muddy then and the fact that everything is still so clear is really incredible um, and also all the beautiful sinuousness of all those tracking sequences at the beginning when she's training at quantico just oh just I, gorgeous another thing i noticed just talking about the camera work uh, is is the way that the camera 
like will glance at stuff to observe I just, and everyone just got to see me glance as though I were a camera. Um, we're never doing video again. Um, <laughs> That's Demi, you know, and I think Demi and Tak Fujimoto had such an understanding by that point. You know, yeah. it's, he is always noticing everything going on in a frame. There's no dead space. Everything is interesting. There's something happening. You know, you see people reacting, you see things going on. And, you know, I think that's just a director and a, and a DOP that, that really understand each other. Yeah. So like she's walking and then it like glances, God, everyone can see me looking as though I'm the camera. It glances <laughs> up and sees like behavioral sciences. And then when she first meets Buffalo Bill, the camera kind of gives a furtive glance at the moth painting behind her where it's almost like Jody, 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 Jody. Yeah. But the um, use of eyes are so important in that way too. Um, right. Especially a, in all the close-ups. Yeah. And the camera is like acting like those eyes. So it's a lot of like observations, a big part of this movie. And uh, like what Bill was saying, there's that. If you think of a, a psychiatrist, you probably think of, someone sitting on a couch not looking at the psychiatrist the psychiatrist sitting like slightly behind them mm -hmm. and i think that is a thing that people do because it can be very difficult to speak eye to eye with someone because you feel vulnerable and you as a listener may not pay attention to what they're saying because you're distracted by their face so it's like in that moment he's turned on his superpower of analysis because he's already seen her he already He's dominated her with his uh, appraisal of her outfit. And so now he's looking away so he can really focus on her words and the way she's saying them much in the way that he might if he was, you know, yeah. analyzing her. And just like, it's, yeah. it's such a good character thing. And like the way it's staged is so beautiful. <laughs> also, don't I mean, you think that the camera work is echoing what Crawford has told? I mean, I get the feeling that Lecter is smart enough. He knows Jack Crawford. He knows what Jack Crawford oh, is yeah. about. He probably knows that Jack Crawford has said to, to Clarice, don't let him in your head. Mm -hmm. So he knows that he is overstepping the mark. He knows that he's getting something special from her. And he pays her the respect of listening and not putting her on the spot, making her feel as comfortable as he can possibly make her feel while he's getting this personal information out of her. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, that sense of mutual respect as much as, you know, an uh, investigating agent can respect a psychopath killer, um, you know, that mutual respect, the fact that he says, you know, I'm not coming after you anytime soon, Clarice. I, I think the world is a more interesting place with you in it. I love that relationship. She, she, and, she, and I think that's there in the camera work. I think that's 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 uh, signaled somehow in the camera work, in the way he gives her her space and mm -hmm. is somewhat diplomatic while while getting this information out of her and in, in effect getting inside of her head in a way she's been warned yeah. against. And that's why I was saying like the camera, when I was younger, I was just like, yeah, they're looking in the camera because that's where the person is. But this time it's just like, God, there's so much more going on and I didn't respect yeah. it. Uh, Bill, what were you going to say? I was going to say, it's funny that, you know, David mentioned that because she even mentions to her roommate when her roommate is the first one to call her after he first escapes. And she, she's like no i'm not i'm not worried about myself like <laughs> he would consider that rude like mm. to come after me like no he's not he's not gonna do that so yeah I, he even gives her the clue about miss moffat is because uh multiple makes through come on her and he's like i wouldn't yeah. have wanted that for you i feel super bad that it happened because you came here to see me so not for you little lady i mean that's what i that's what i'm going back to from the big, very beginning which is my fascination with lector really began with that 
protege mentor relationship that I immediately understood. And I think as a kid or as a seventh grader wished that I had somebody in my life who was protective of me in that same way. I mean, it's fucking sick. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But you're, you're right. Protege mentor. He wants her to succeed. Yeah, the way he couches his grievance with her is I'm going to give you what you want, which is a path towards advancement. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't even say, like, I'm going to help you save these women and bring this man to justice. He's like, you're ambitious as shit, aren't you? You want this. I'm going to help you succeed. Mm. Yeah. The idea of gaze is really interesting. And you kind of um, alluded to this, Brian, which is I I do um, therapy with my my therapist over FaceTime right now because of the pandemic. And it's really interesting to watch yourself being therapized uh, on the screen because now I realize how much I look away when I'm talking about trauma and, you know, things that happened in my earlier part of my life. And, and part of that is um, part of that is just the process of recall and what happens cognitively when you're drawing memories in And part of that is it's really hard to look at yourself when you're thinking about um, things like dark things that you've experienced or death or abuse or whatever. Um, So I think that your, your points are very salient from that perspective. And also uh, I'm my other life in my other life. I'm not a therapist, but I'm in a role that's kind of adjacent to being a therapist. And so much of that job is predicated on, not just listening to what my students have to say and like their experiences um, of their mental health or their physical health, but observing them and all the silent body language, cues, the body language, yeah. um, they can say one thing, but their body often betrays something else. Um, or, you know, you observe their environment that they're in because you happen to be over, over camera. So it, it um, it's like replicating this, uh, this filmic relationship sometimes you're watching them watching you watching them watching you i mean it's um it's a copy of a copy of a copy as, as walter benjamin would say yeah mm. they do a really good job of um of evoking that i think can i throw in a point i'd just be curious to hear everybody's feelings about yes you know do. that uh jody foster really wanted this she actually tried to option the, the novel, the Thomas Harris no, novel herself, but Gene Hackman had already optioned it as a uh, directing project. And he was originally planning to direct and possibly to play Jack Crawford. Um, and he dropped it when this, the script started to come together. He felt it was too violent following Mississippi burning. He didn't want to be stuck in this kind of... There, there were a lot of people turned off this project by the violence, the sexual violence, the, the, um, the subject matter. Um, and, you know, Demi's first choice, I'm sure everybody has read, was Michelle Pfeiffer. He had had a great experience working with her in the fabulous Married to the Mob. Mm-hmm. Great film. <laughs> how the fuck, how much do we love Mercedes Rule in that film? Love her uh, to death. And that movie is like the most Long Island movie I think so I've great. ever seen. It's so great. <laughs> Joan Cusack, always great people. Anyway, um, so Michelle Pfeiffer turned it down, too violent for her. Uh, and also, I think um, I read somewhere that she, Orion, would not meet her $2 million asking price at that time. So then, you know, he, he went to Meg Ryan, who turned it down. Thank God, because Meg Ryan, <laughs> disastrous. Laura we, Dern. Laura Dern, the third choice. First of all, Meg Ryan proved that she could do a flawless Ozark slash Southern accent in the movie Courage Under Fire. 
It doesn't matter. They're just I was too joking much so hard Clarice. about that. Yeah. yeah. Her as Clarice would have been not great. <laughs> anyway, third choice, Laura Dern. And I think other people who read for the role, Nicole Kidman, I read somewhere. And also Brooke Smith, the fabulous Brooke Smith, who oh. ends up being Catherine Martin. Um, she had read for Clarice. Um, I just, I mean, I, I, I would be curious to see Michelle Pfeiffer as Clarice. That I would see. And I definitely see Laura Dern. Oh, yeah. She would have been really good, I think. Uh, apparently not a big enough box office name for the studio at that mm-hmm. time. Um, but yet, uh, two years later, she was in Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. There were all these alternate she wasn't the draw. versions of, of Silence of the Lambs. You know, Sean Connery being the original choice for the oh. lecture. Those, those are very different movies. I just wonder, you know, if any of you have any opinions about any of those alternates. I think um, I, I, so, uh, this is going to sound really terrible. Um, I, I don't mean it to be, though. That's not going to help me. Michelle Pfeiffer is, to my mind, a lot more conventionally beautiful than than Jodie Foster is. So I feel like that would have done something. I don't know if it would technically be better or worse, um, because as it is, Jodie Foster is like the only woman in any of these situations. So it kind of just shows like the omnivorousness of the male gaze upon her. That even though she's not you know, dropped it, gorgeous knockout, you know, not, not saying that she's like awful or anything, but you know, it, it would be, it would have been strange to see Michelle Pfeiffer, or I guess like even Nicole Kidman um, in that role, just because it, it, to amp up the more obvious immediate movie star, physical beauty of this person would it would have made it feel less realistic, even though yeah. we know that Michelle Pfeiffer is a real person with, with obviously a real face and very, very beautiful. I mean, her face was made to be in Dangerous Liaisons. I mean, that's, you, she's a royal. She is, um, she's Baroque. Mm. I don't know if I would have bought her as an FBI agent. And that's my own sexism. Don't get me wrong. Like, I am, I'm fully aware of that. But I agree with you. It would have changed the the dynamic. And I think on the same token, if Brooke Smith had been Clarice, that would have changed it too. I mean, I said to my husband yesterday, the only time you ever see a fat woman as a victim in these films, whether or, or CSI or any of these serial killer stories, you only see hot, fuckable women. You never see the bodies that Frederica or Catherine have because fat women are not really seen as killable <laughs> or like <laughs> Or or uh, or is commodif- commodifiable in that way. Well, they're just not yeah. seen. They're just not visible. It's just not seen, and it's and it's a real phenomenon. And I've heard this happen. I've heard this before. I think there was a case in the UK where a woman uh, brought her rapist to trial, and the argument was that she was too fat to rape or something. Like, why would anybody want to? Uh, well, victimize the, her in the that Trump, way. The Trump rebuttal to so many charges of sexual... Right. Uh, oh, my God. Right. Was, right. Oh, you yeah, know, well, I wouldn't touch her. She's not cute. Right. She's not hot enough. I mean... So, of course, the only movie where a fat woman happens to be the victim and we're meant to sympathize or empathize with a fat woman is when she's literally going to be a skin suit and mm. she is specifically targeted for her body. I mean, it's, it is really interesting to watch that as a, as a, as a bigger woman. I think that's um, one of the things that drove people like Betty Friedan nuts about this movie over the years. Mm-hmm. She was one of the more vocal opponents um, to it. 
Um, I mean, it, it would have been interesting of, to see her in that role, Brooke Smith specifically, because she's she's kind of the I, I mean, she's not unattractive by any means, but she's a larger woman. She's a a bigger than you know tiny stick that we are used to with Hollywood. But um, she's another or, another case in which you get the feeling that you know Demi is kind of allowing all of this life of the character outside yeah. of what's in the script. So you know, I kind of. I don't know whether it's just me reading, but I get the feeling there's a kind of bad girl there who's kind of rebelled against having this this uh, hard boiled politician mother, and she's kind of doing oh yeah, oh, yeah she's and, living in kind of a dingy apartment. She's driving a shitty with her car. Cat. She's singing her a cat. jeans. <laughs> yeah, she's definitely a she's a real person. Singing along really to Tom Petty that. in the car. Yeah, exactly. She's got she the a, she's a real to, person to get that friggin' dog, and then she refuses to like prove it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Even precious. We haven't talked about Precious. I hate that dog so much. This might be the reason what? that I hate poodles. Honestly, I love point. little bitch dogs. I would I, love a little bitch dog. I hate Precious, and I also hate Precious. Just resur- had a resurfacing um, just recently in the media because Precious is a dead ringer for Ted Cruz's dog Snowflake that he left behind when he oh. went to Cancun. Oh no! There were there were photos all over film Twitter oh. of Precious looking down the well. Oh my god. <laughs> No, so you I'm, left me without food and water. And so my power. Like, my dog of like a decade died like last weekend, mm. and oh no. so like I'm in a state now where like I see any dog and I'm like dogs are like a gift and like they're so wonderful. But I saw Precious in the movie. I was like, you know, maybe I fucking hate dogs because I can't. Yeah. Even no, now that's a my, trauma response. Even once now again. in my grief, even now, like when I'm just like dogs in general, like even the ones I don't like, even the weird ratty ones, even the time. But then I see Precious and I'm like, except for that one, because I feel like that one sucks a lot. Precious no. is a supremely annoying dog. I, I found that a lot of times my reaction <laughs> to a person's pet is in direct response to how that person deals with that pet. And so I also think like the cuddling it and like holding it and talking to it. I'm just like, oh, I hate both. Of, I hate how you guys are together. No, like, I would totally yeah, wear precious. precious in my purse and walk around with her. <laughs> but precious- I hate dogs. I, like, I'm an anti-dog person. My husband and I are always just like, fuck dogs. Like to wear that shirt, I would wear a fuck dog shirt. You're Cruella Deville, right? You are Cruella Deville. You bought yeah, me a cake Cruella. and said congratulations. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. No, I mean, I I I feel for people. I, I do like dogs, but you know, just like the concept of dogs versus individual dogs. I'm against the concept of dogs. But what I hate about Precious, Precious though is that Precious is, is gloating while he's holding Precious yeah, in her arm. A, like it puts the lotion on its skin. Kick. It puts it back in the basket. You know, Precious is barking. You know, barking in tandem with with her owner. And I, I think Precious is pretty fucking evil. She's a familiar. She's like Nagini. Or... <laughs> oh, so you're saying that like in two years, Catherine is going to start to murder people because Precious is just son of Sam style? Like, do it. Yeah, she's like a horcrux or something, and she's going to start by osmosis infecting people with her evil. I, I that's need... why I like Precious. I love She's She's the real Nazi. Like that. Yeah, oh, the, <laughs> the dog is the one who quilted that Nazi symbol. Um, I do. Maybe it's any... the dog blanket. Maybe that is the dog blanket. Oh, yeah. That's, that's possible. <laughs> Would you hide a gun under a dog blanket? I guess that's the place to do it. Um, has anyone watched the new, is it CBS show? Yeah. Star CBS All, All no, Access or something like that. Okay. I was going to ask. Certainly if, not. Like, I was going to ask Thank if, you, like, David. They, they talk about the dog at all. I don't know. Because that's I think one that of those. Apparently they I, well, have I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that that is not a Ryan Murphy 
Oh, Lord. That would have been so bad. Clarice would be wearing some kind of bedazzled frock and a, and a kind of a, a fascinator in a hair or something. And Crawford you know, played by that woman that he always has in all of his shows. What's her name? Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson. No, yeah. Sarah Paulson would be like the next killer. Who's the older one? She was... Jessica Lang. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. I think yeah. she could have been a good she, she she wasn't in Ratchet, so she she might have kind of escaped the Ryan Murphy net for now. I think, yeah. I think Jessica Lang could have been a good Clarice. Maybe a oh, I, but old, I said that but... she would have been he, he would Ryan Murphy would cast her as Crawford. He'd be like, oh, yeah. isn't it crazy? Like I made Agent. Oh wow, Crawford, I made a, like a boy a woman. <laughs> That's the type of thing Ryan Murphy would really pat himself on the back for. I think I think a female Crawford would be very interesting, but it would have to be a reboot. It couldn't be like 1992 or whatever the series. And we, we don't need a remake of this film. I don't no. Need oh, please God, no. I would be, I, so like we're we're getting into like the 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 Hannibal extended universe. Um, the Lecterverse. The Lecterverse, the yes. Um, but, like, you know, in Hannibal, like, the, the NBC TV series, I mean, I loved that. And, like, Arthur, who's my partner at the distillery, and I had, like, a good 30-minute conversation because he's like, I don't know what movie, like, my, my fiancé and I are going to watch tonight. I was like, you know what I watched that totally holds up? Sounds of the Lambs. And then we just got talking about all the, the lectors. And he was like, the best is Mads Mikkelsen. And um, I love Mads Mikkelsen. Maybe most fuckable, but not not. Well, doesn't that make him the best? <laughs> yeah, I can see what you're doing right now. No one else can see it, but you're on the hot on the hotness scale. Yeah, Mads Mikkelsen. He's I, hot, but way like superior to Anthony Hopkins. But well, what, I, I, I think Hopkins I, is pretty hard to beat. Yeah, what I said to, to uh, Brian Arthur, Cox is pretty good too. Yeah, what, yeah, I, yeah. what I said to Arthur was Mads Mikkelsen is great at playing Lecter pretending to be a human. I like the fact that Anthony Hopkins gets to play him as like just totally unleashed. He's like, everybody knows what I did. I don't have to pretend anymore. I will bite your face off immediately. And I don't give a shit. Um, it would have been interesting to see how that show adapted itself to the story of Sons of the Lambs. But this is one of those weird properties where all the rights are so fucked up mm. that I don't know that you could ever unify them because everyone is holding on to them so tightly. Yeah, apparently um, Clarice, you can't say the name Hannibal Lecter. You can only describe the crazy man from the Baltimore Psychiatric Center or whatever, wherever he's staying. Yeah, I don't even know if they can say Buffalo Bill or not. Like, so I was, the reason I'd asked about Starling is because I was going to be like, do they ever, like, does she have Precious? Like, is that the stupid thing that they'll do to try to, like, Easter yeah, who gets precious? Have that, have that crossover? I think Catherine gets Precious. Well, now I can no, ask. I think Ted Cruz got Precious. <laughs> Dracula dog never ages. The Dorian Grave dogs. That's what yeah, he was doing. Exactly. He was she blood to feed his dogs. Um, I just watched Wild. Speaking of Dorian Gray, um, it, which is the I think Stephen Fry version mm-hmm. where he plays. Is that, that's the one with uh, yeah Stephen Fry and Jude Law is the bit of Jude his, Law. Yes, his bit of fluff. In the words of this wonderful Boise. podcast I listened to called Bad Gaze, which is all about dissecting. Uh, bad gays from history. He is like a classic, quote unquote, evil twink. Um, <laughs> terrible so watching... evil twink. But that is classic. That is Jude Law's bum at its most golden and perfect. That I mean, thing. his hair was the most golden and perfect. Like Jude yeah. Law, in, he has in not his had good luck. and totality, was golden and perfect. I Everyone also... talks about talent in Mr. Ripley, but they forget about that shot of Jude Law naked at the window in Wild. That was he, that, he that was, drove a lot of yeah. gay boys, past and present, 
quite wild. Just um, <laughs> just because we said the words Dorian Gray, I was watching because we're all talking about it now. Um, I watched the movie Safe House for some reason the other day. I think it was one of those things where I just needed something on, and I went to the first streaming thing I could find, and then it was the first one that I looked at and was like, "Yeah, I could watch that again." And there's a point where someone calls Denzel Washington the Black Dorian Gray, and I was like, "Wow, yeah, you fucking nailed it! Absolutely, <laughs> good work, Safe House." Wow. Yeah. So, uh, Safe House B minus. Can I just? I, none of you Wild. guys. Three none of you guys are from a trade publication background, obviously, because you know all the things that. Anyone who comes, like I do from Variety Hollywood Reporter, the first thing we would say about Silence of the Lambs is that it came along at a period when the general uh, misconception in Hollywood was that a movie with a woman front and center could not do real box office. And yet right. this mm. movie came along, was a massive sleeper hit. It also defied all the conventional Oscar wisdom by being a first quarter release that, yeah. that resonated all the way through to the end. It was out on fucking home video by the time it won five wow. oscars it's and it's one of only three so it's like Shit's creek it just yeah. <laughs> it's one of only three movies in history that has won the top five oscars best film director actor actress and screenplay do you know what the ones were before it were i think it happened one night as one of them and i can't remember the other but they were quite a while back and i'm pretty sure there hasn't been one since i mean someone can no there hasn't happily protect, uh, prove me wrong but uh, i mean i think that's pretty amazing Particularly when you consider, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about Silence of the Lambs as a horror movie, when you consider the Academy's aversion to horror movies and what yeah. shift they've had over the years, you know. They, yeah, I, I mean, I mentioned categories. I, I mentioned the, the six, right? It's, it's yeah. The Exorcist, it's Jaws, it's Sixth Sense, Black Swan and Get Out are the only ones that have been nominated, you know, ostensibly are horror films. Best right? picture. I mean, you could, you could argue, you could put Carrie in there because both Sissy Spacek and, and Piper Laurie were nominated, but there are, there are very few. I, um, I, was about to, yeah. I was about to ask the question that is like just Twitter bait nonsense. Um, is this actually a horror film? And I'm just not going to do it. I don't think we have to talk about it. We've been talking for like an hour and 45 minutes and we cannot afford to spend another two hours debating whether this I vote yes. I don't need to debate it. I think it's a horror movie. It's a thriller. It's a horror. I think of it as a psychological thriller. I've never yeah. thought of it as a horror movie. But, you know, if you want to call it a horror movie, it's fine by me. I'm not going to take issue with it. Yeah, I have loose borders when it comes to horror. I think Apocalypse Now is a horror movie. I think okay. Sunset Boulevard is a horror movie. So Horror is... is, is um a big tent genre if it scares someone it technically becomes a horror film so like you know just like a, a child watching land Before i think jack Time. and jill with adam sandler is a horror movie but <laughs> well speaking of which uh... that's the thing is like it's like you know what's a comedy it's like i don't know if it makes you laugh i guess it's a comedy so like you know, wow. mommy dearest that's a comedy <laughs> So, you know, David, I, I, I'm looking at it now and it was <laughs> it was released on Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day. Yes, that is that is absolutely wild. They that were is... dumping it. Nobody had any faith in it. You know, they wow. were very, very nervous about it. And they I think that maybe the test screenings, I don't know, they tested everything, you know, to the hilt back then. So I'm sure mm -hmm. there, were, there was a lot of test screenings, focus groups, all of that crap. But you know, they did not apparently have a lot of faith in it at the time. And it, it wasn't an instant blockbuster. It did sort of creep up. It, it was a, a sleeper hit that grew and grew. And so, you know, I think by the time it got to the Oscars, 
maybe it was. I don't know what the other films were that were up, was up against that year, but um, you know, obviously the the film standing had grown. I remember seeing it, and there was already by the time it got to Italy, there was already quite a bit of excitement about it. So I was quite eager to go see it early, and I think I went to see it twice in that theater in initial release. The the other film that uh, had the uh, that five uh category sweep is uh one flew over the cuckoo's nest so yeah oh, right. it was it was it happened one night and then one flew over the cuckoo's nest so so which is it, what it late seems, 70s yeah 75 and oh, and happened one night is 1934 mm-hmm. so you know every every 40 years or so we're gonna get one i guess so um, wait so ratchet was considered a lead in that film not supporting yes Oh, wow. Interesting. In the same way, you could argue that Lecter is not really a lead. Right, but, right. You know, in terms of screen time. but so, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya is basically the lead in Judas and the Black Messiah, but he's still going to get nominated for yeah. supporting actor tomorrow. Sure. So. Mm-hmm. That's the craziest. Oh, wait. Um, so, so the Best Picture nominees in 1992. I hate how they do this. Anyway, so at the 1992 Oscars, which are honoring movies released in 1991, the best picture nominees were Sounds of the Lambs, Bugsy, um, The Prince of Tides, JFK, and Beauty and the Beast. Well, The Prince of Turds, forget about that. <laughs> I mean, JFK about, is almost unwatchable. All about Barbara's fingernails. I am. Um, I like. Great manicure film, and that's about it. <laughs> I like watching JFK in the way I used to like getting drunk with terrible people because like you, you just know that like the shit that comes out of their mouth is going to be something that you're going to want to repeat to someone again when you're sober um, it's like actor palooza that film you know there's a million yeah it's a huge ensemble cast there's a million big names all doing kind of chewy characters you know i actually don't mind jfk as you know within the pantheon of oliver stone craziness i think it's actually pretty interesting but um what was it what was the one before prince of tides bugsy yeah, Bugsy is pretty minor. I mean, Bugs as Barry Levinson, right? Gangster movie, Warren Beatty and Ann, uh, Annette Benning. Correct, yes. Yeah, pretty uh, forgettable, yeah. I think. I feel like And I also confuse it with the child character. version of that movie. That was also Oh, Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone. Yeah. I'm obsessed with that movie. <laughs> Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster's in that. And, we brought and, it she, back. and a, a, adults are singing out of their mouths and it's Totally creepy. Jodie Foster is singing a very creepy sex worker song. My yeah. name is Tallulah. Yeah. Um, oh my god! And then yeah, and then yeah, Beauty and the Beast. So I don't even I don't even know what to make of this year for the Oscars. Hmm. It's very strange. Yeah, it seems like silence is just steamrolling. Is it just like else. a shitty year for movies? Like I don't. I mean, like, I know. You know I love I love Beauty and the Beast. I think I, mean, that I love a, Beauty and the Beast too. But I'm such saying, a like, turnaround for the Disney animated musical and. For um, for an animated film to crack into Best Picture, I mean, like, yeah. and just, yeah. I mean, uh, well, yeah, film editing. But I think Silence of the Lambs was the right choice. Yeah, yeah no, I fully I, I agree. Well, rarely, rare, rarely is it is it that cut and dry. But yeah, I think I think it's pretty pretty safe safe yeah. choice there. There's a it, it, you know this is one of those things I'm gonna have to do where I just start going back and looking at what was nominated for Oscar certain years because it is wild to look at some of this stuff. Do you yeah, want so to do this, a podcast on that? Not <laughs> particularly. I don't have I like I I don't even have time to do this podcast. If I'm being honest, I like carve out time to do this. It is a labor. Of so this was the fifth highest grossing film of 1991 worldwide. Wow. Think of that. What that's, was the number one? Incredible. I have no idea. Was it Terminator 2? 
Uh, I can find that out. Real Bill, quick. how can you not have this information right at your fingertips? How it's Terminator Two. Good, yeah. good work. Good work. All right. That movie made half a million dollars. Wow. Worldwide. Half a million. Uh, yeah. Half a billion. Half a billion. Sorry. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, five hundred million. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Uh, um, no, so- you know, the, the other thing that I wanted to mention real quick is, uh, you know, Orion was such a nice little uh, thing to see as I was kind of opening up the credits of this film. I was like, oh, Orion. I haven't, I haven't watched an Orion film in in a very long time. I guess they're a MGM company, so yeah, because they um, like died in the early 90s didn't they they've sort of resurfaced a little bit i think they've they've had a couple of releases out in the past year and they were the oh, first you know the valley girl remake i think was an orion oh. movie um, because the original was i think i remember that correctly but i could be wrong but i i know they've resurfaced somewhat as a as a kind of niche label of some kind i'm not sure who owns them now um but. i see i don't know that's a good question it looks like Silence of the Lambs was one of their last films and whatever their initial run was. But yeah, they had some. They had oh, some Child's movies. Play. Did, did you mention that? I Child's Play, the 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 remake. Uh, that was them. Oh, that that's Orion. Oh, right. Hmm. I mean, they they did a lot of big movies. Like they did Bull Durham, Hoosiers, Dances with Wolves. Platoon. I feel like they were the new line of their day. Yeah. Mm. I think that's a really good point. They just, uh, you know, they got screwed. So they're, (laughs) it looks like they're currently under the name United Artists Releasing, which is kind of co-owned by Annapurna Pictures and MGM. So Mm, interesting interesting stuff and weird stuff going on with all of that. So, yep. Yeah. So are there any final thoughts that we have on Sunslams? Is there anything we didn't talk about? It was important to me that we talk about Bulldog Briscoe and the Nazi quilt. Other than that, we could have just talked about nothing and I would have been fine with it. So I'm good. But does anyone else have any thoughts or observations they want to share before we say goodbye? I'll just say two things real quick. Uh, Just to your point about whether it's horror or not, I guess that when you take the the combination of gothic and grand guignol kind of elements like you know the the well with the claw, bloody claw marks yeah. on mm-hmm. the wall and just the way that corridor down to the to lecture cell at the asylum all of that i guess that is pretty classic horror so it's hard to argue that it, it is a horror movie fundamentally um the, i think that um to that end though i mean like uh, when when he released crimson peak uh, Guillermo del Toro was like, it's not horror, it's gothic romance, you know. So they're even, even. Don't roll your eyes, Robin. <laughs> I'm gonna. <laughs> you know, it, you can take those things and, and still not have. But like I said, I'm not here to tell anyone who calls it horror that they're wrong. But you know, is I it spoopy? Person. Yes. So I, in my in my opinion, that is horror. I'm gonna <laughs> continue on, David. Yes, the, only, David. the only other thing, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, is, um. And if this is too cheesy to include in the show, feel free to cut it out. But, you know, as somebody who knew him very uh, a little bit and had had nothing but just wonderful experiences with him, my um, Q&A with him and a bunch of the cast and Jenny Lumet for Rachel Getting Married is one of the favorite Q&As I've ever done. It was just, it had the same Chekhovian vibe as the film. It was just, you know, everybody was smart. Everybody had something to offer. Um, it was a, just a, a, such a delight, and every encounter with it, with him that I had personally was just nothing but delightful as well. Um, I was, you know, I actually did shed a couple tears when I woke up on whatever it was in 2017 and um, saw the news that he had 
died. And I think that Jodie Foster is such an intensely private person. Um, this was pre, uh, you know, she was not a presence on social media. There was no reason for her. But her her statement, I would just love to read it if if you can bear to hear it. It's it's short and it's just it feels so heart heartfelt. Um, she says, I'm heartbroken to lose a friend, a mentor, a guy so singular and dynamic, you'd have to design a hurricane to contain him. Jonathan was as quirky as his comedies and as deep as his dramas. He was pure energy, the unstoppable cheerleader for anyone creative. Just as passionate about music as he was about art, he was and always will be a champion of the soul. JD, most beloved, something wild, brother of love, director of the Lambs, love that guy, love him so much. I mean... Jodie Foster, what a fucking class act. I mean, that's the statement I want someone to make when I keel over tomorrow. I wonder what she'll <laughs> say when Mel Gibson dies. Eh, I would hope she'd just be diplomatically quiet. I hope so, too. <laughs> <laughs> You're already on thin ice, lady. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with you. That is, I mean, a lot of women do not have good experiences with male directors. Um, mm. and, and it's interesting I that... Value that this the huge list of directors who acknowledge Demi as a major influence, you know, like Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. And, oh, yeah. Uh, Brady Corbe, Luca Guadagnino. Um, I'm sure I'm forgetting some. I mean, Spike Lee kind of acknowledged him in uh, in in uh, making American Utopia that obviously he was following on from Stop, Stop Making Sense. You know, there are no women in that group or at least mm. no women other than Jodie Foster, who's also a director, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Who got her first shot at directing uh, Little Man Tate as part of her deal with Orion. It was uh, part of her package oh. was that she would get the right to make Little Man Tate for them. She didn't direct Nell, did she? Uh, no, just, I think that was Michael Apted or someone like that. Oh, okay, I was just, I love the Up series, so I think I was just reading about that film, but I couldn't remember why I was just thinking about it. I um it's another movie that I saw when I was super young. Yeah, it was Michael Apted, and I have like no recollection of it. I'll have yeah. to watch that one day. I, yeah, I don't know if it ages very well. There are a lot of ableist issues in that film, but hmm. um, yeah. I, I appreciate you reading that, David. But um, yeah. I just always thought, you know, like for that. all of her personal turmoil and whatever, you know, process went into her coming out, I've always just thought she was so smart, uh, such an admirable figure. So classy, you know, most of her, okay, she's made some shitty movies over the years, you know, no one's going to make a strong case for Maverick. Um, but, uh, you know, she's also made a lot of really good movies and, uh, and, you know, she brings integrity. I mean, even for me, a completely boring ass movie, The Mauritanian, <laughs> um, you know, she classes it up. She just classes up whatever she does. Hey man, she I, did, wait, I was about to say, she won a Golden Globe. Did she win a Golden Globe? She did. She okay. won. She did. And she and her yeah. speech was so much better than than anything in the movie. Um, I loved <laughs> seeing her at home in her pajamas with the dog and the wife and all of that. And it, it was, wasn't it was, precious, was it? It wasn't precious. <laughs> it was a big, big ass, messy dog. Yeah, Very I, cute. I've always, I, this is, we don't even need to talk about this. We can ask after we've done recording because I just had a question about her personal life. But like, that's not. Who cares? Um, oh, come on, ask. Gosh. Well, I just like was it was it her not wanting to come out, or was it is she just one of those people who's like, I'm a movie actor, you don't have any rights to know anything about my life. Like, you know, a lot I think of she'd been pretty badly burned by having someone try to kill the president of the United States, right? In so her name, it, it totally uh, makes sense. And that so she, would she has her reasons for wanting to remain yeah. private, but uh, you know, look, as someone who's gay, who had my own process of coming out. 
uh, probably a lot earlier than, than, than many people I know, it's such a complicated thing. I don't think anyone has the right to make rules about how anyone else does that. So yeah. particularly if you have a career in Hollywood to maintain and you've seen um, the way Hollywood can stigmatize certain people and rule you out of the casting. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a shorthand for, for men in theater that I think is probably frowned upon now, but back in the, in, in the day, men who were considered too gay, there was a shorthand they would have at casting. It was uh, Natch, N-A-C-H, not a convincing homosexual, a heterosexual. And- uh, Oh boy. <laughs> you know, any actor who's come up in any, any aspect, any, any part of the entertainment industry has their fears about that. And, mm. you know, I'm sure that was all tied into it. But, you know, I just respect the hell out of her. I think she's super smart, classy lady. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, classy go. And I've, I feel like I've been getting to know her a lot better over the last few years by watching stuff that she made as a kid. Like I did a whole uh, series on Freaky Friday. and Love Freaky Friday. Yeah. Um, Barbara, what's her face? Isn't that, oh my God, I'm forgetting her name. She's amazing in that film. But Is it Barbara I, Hershey? No, no. Uh, the, oh my God, what is her name? She was in Nashville. She was just really, really Barbara Harris. That part. Barbara Harris. Thank you. Barbara Harris oh, is really fantastic. wonderful in that film. But getting to know Jody as a kid, I think, has totally informed my experience of her as an actor because I obviously was. Uh, she was an adult when I was a kid, and um, you know, films like uh, like Contact and things. You know that mm-hmm. that is my vision of her. You know, almost like a college professor. To, to see her as a tomboy in all these films. Um, I love you know, Panic Room because you get to see Jodie yeah. Foster and think back to when she was a kid and there's baby case to you. I know, I know. Oh, God, I it's think, crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for however little of Silence of the Lambs I saw when I was a child, I think Contact might have been the first movie I ever saw Jodie Foster in. Because like I saw that movie the second yeah. it was out on VHS because I was like it's got aliens in it and I was like ten years old and obsessed with aliens and then of course you watch Contact and you're like yeah mind fuck aliens where's my fucking grace <laughs> like why yeah. is anyone getting abducted where are the probes but I still really liked the movie and I really liked her in it and so is that, that Zemeckis was... is it Robert Zemeckis yes it is yeah yeah I think that was on HBO a lot as, as when I was a kid. Um... Sorry, David. I feel like all we're just saying today is when I was two years old and I love this movie. Yeah, whatever. Like, whatever. Damn you all to hell. <laughs> yeah, but we don't get to tell stories about charming Anthony Hopkins. Whatever. The tyranny of, Ruth is, of youth is overrated and I'm, I'm here to burn it down. <laughs> I agree with you. Oh, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play that, that clip for my daughter sometime. I have here. a big, fat, round number birthday coming up this week, so... Oh, it's this you, week. You've hit a tender Mazel tov. spot. Thank Congratulations. You. Thank you. That's exciting. Are you? What are you doing to celebrate? Can you Probably nothing during the week because I'm actually filling in for my editor, editor who is uh, taking a bit of time off. And uh, uh, so I'm busy and grinding out South by Southwest reviews. And, uh, uh, and then I'm going to have a dinner with a few friends, all of whom are kind of semi-vaccinated. We've all been very safe and we're going to choose a... A garden restaurant in the hood and uh, and just go out next weekend i am so excited for you uh that is really wonderful i'm glad you get to do something not just sit in your house yeah i'm looking forward to traveling again i can't wait to get out of my house this has been a long year yep i am with you on that one i used to travel 
at least once a month, even if it was just to go somewhere for a weekend or go down to New York since I have so many people who live down there. So this has been a particularly tough year. Um, my, my year I mean, for the last, I don't know how many years has been structured around, you know, about seven business trips per year for mm-hmm. anything from a week to 14 days to two weeks. Uh, um, and then, you know, one personal trip, a long trip home to Australia where my folks are and yeah. uh, friends who are so far back, they're practically family. And so a whole year without that, you know, I did sneak in a little, a couple of little trips to Cape Cod, to Provincetown in the summer. And that was pretty fucking magical. But, you know, a whole Black. year without travel, it just really hammers home the the fact that one of the things I love about New York is getting the fuck out of New York. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Speaking as a native New Yorker, <laughs> I feel that very hard. On that note, our next classic episode will be Quick Change with Bill Murray and Sheena Spence. <laughs> or Escape from New York, John Carpenter. Nope, it's going to be Quick Change because I really love Quick Change. <laughs> it's funny oh, that please, everyone's like, Please invite oh. me back. I have such good Bill Murray stories. Oh, oh yes. That is good to know. When we eventually do, do Quick Change. All right, stop selling this movie. I ain't never heard of it. I once made our entire podcast do The Mask of... No, no, it wasn't The Mask of Zorro. It was was Unstoppable, because I just kept making jokes about us doing Unstoppable. And then we did. And it was a great conversation. What is Unstoppable? Remind me. That's uh, Chris Pine and... Oh, is that M. Night Shyamalan? No, no, it's uh, Tony Scott. It was his last movie with the train. Oh, right, 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 yeah. It's a missile the size of the Chrysler building. I think I watched half on, on a plane and fell asleep. Oh. Yeah, so and not me. It's a great <laughs> movie. But anyway, right. so now I'm going to do yep. the same thing with uh, Quick Change. Although Chris Pine is the good Chris. Yeah. Really? <laughs> I think Chris Hemsworth is... He's okay, like yeah. He's he's my my compatriot, so yeah. Yeah, well, I was going go to say. Chris, he's Chris, well. Chris Hemsworth is, is third Chris. All those Hemsworth boys are nice lads. They're good good Australian boys. Yeah. See, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for today. Uh, David Rudy, thank you so much for being here to talk to us. It was so much fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, let us, uh, what, what are we, what are we talking about next week? Someone want to tell me that? I think the world to come. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I'm pulling Bill up. Uncertain. What is that? Stupid uh, yeah. The world to come. Godzilla versus Kong is on March 28th oh, and we are confirmed and ready to go for that. But yeah, yeah. the world to come is next. All right. Yes. Wait, what is, what is, when does that mean? Godzilla versus come is, uh, versus Kong is opening. Uh, the 28th, I guess. So, so two days ahead of that or whatever. Oh, he wasn't it's, serious. Okay. No, no, he, just, he had a, a slip. I had no idea that was coming up so soon. That means I have to get a screener and review that sucker. Yeah, we gotta watch. <laughs> we gotta watch. I'm just thinking of the porn parody now. No, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but Migs has gotten into my head. So, God, Godzilla versus Cum is another version. <laughs> this might be the episode where we said the word "cum" the most. Um, For intellectual reasons. Right. Yeah. yeah. Again, absolutely. I, I defy anyone correct. on Twitter to give me even a Best Picture nominee where someone had come thrown on them. Um, it's also just crazy. Like this was Boogie Nights nominated? I just—that was my initial thought. I don't know if it was nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> best Julianne Moore line ever. Shoot it on. And my she was nominated for that for sure. Absolutely. Amber um, Waves loved her. 
So the I world, love that movie. The world That's to come will be our next episode. Um, looking forward to that. Lesbians on the frontier. <sighs> and Ooh. Chris Abbott being nasty. Oh, yeah. I forgot he was a... Nasty, like... This, there's no good way to put this. Now, like, now I have to ask. Nasty, like, evil? Oh, no, I think abusive. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, he's an asshole. Because we just been Spoiler about, alert. Um, so, like, I was like, nasty, like, you know, in a sexual like way? An, like like nasty a hot nasty. <laughs> Get nasty. Like nasty boys. Bad news, nasty. I fucking... Yeah. All right, we gotta leave. This has gotta end. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... I'm thinking about that porn parody. I've gotta go share this with my husband. Who came I up with... Who gets wit- very, very angry about matted fur. <laughs> Speaking oh, of cum. I mean, Kong gets angry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Godzilla ain't got no fur. You got it in my fur? Anyway, uh, (laughs) so that's what we're talking about next week. Uh, The world to come. (laughs) Stop it. Can't (laughs) be able to say that word for the rest of the night. Uh, Before then, uh, let me remind everyone that we were brought to you today by Film Movement Plus. Um, You can enjoy World of Cinema with Film Movement Plus streaming subscription, award-winning independent features, documentaries, and shorts, as well as short classics waiting for you to discover. And there's guaranteed new films every week. Um, it's available on all your favorite streaming devices, including Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire. And it's priced at five ninety nine a month. Uh, but because, again, you are a film stage show listener, you clever listener, you, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30-day free trial, plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code STAGE when signing up. I am curious if it's 50% off, but it's five ninety nine. Are they going to round up or are they going to round down with that little scent that should be left in there? So I don't know. Someone do it and tell me. All you have to do is go to filmmovementplus.com and start streaming today. And don't forget to go to patreon.com slash filmstateshow and give us your money. Now, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time that we are in their ears. David Rooney, would you like to tell people where they can find you online? Yeah, my clunky Twitter handle, unfortunately, I'm, I'm wrestling with the Twitter people to get at David Rooney away from some bogus footballer who opened a twitter account tweeted once in 2009 and was never heard from again uh and has you know no new followers in the in the past 12 years anyway so i am uh, at david c rooney r-o-o-n-e-y one david c rooney one damn thank you clunky (laughs) yeah sorry hey leave them alone I'm just agreeing. It's a- I'm old. I came to Twitter very late. I resisted for years, and basically my editor bullied me into it and said, it's time. <laughs> bullied you or gently encouraged you for your own good? Bullied. Bullied. Abusive. Oh. <laughs> See, now I'm super curious. I There is a there is an at Brian Rowan who has literally never tweeted. They joined in yeah. September of 2013 and have said nothing. Well, I think of the same problem. You're going to have to bully him into submission. Well, no, because I got Brian J. Rowan, and then I don't remember which came first, but like I just started going by Brian J. Rowan everywhere I went, so okay. that's fine. So, I've, so you I've, created your brand there, for Apparently you. There, is a, a, there, you know, there is a lot of precedent for Twitter taking people's accounts back when they're inactive forever. This guy mm-hmm. has been, the, David Rooney has been inactive forever. So I, hopefully, I think the problem is getting their attention. They're busy not kind of banning Nazis yeah, <laughs> cowering under the under the mountain of requests for blue check marks you can't even marks. make a request anymore I no mean, there's I we're burst we're closed yeah oh darn <laughs> um remember that if anybody when, deserves it is you remember that time oh, when every blue check mark on Twitter like couldn't get on at the same time mm-hmm 
Yeah, oh, really? Six years ago. It was a beautiful moment. It was great. Anyway. Well, uh, hey, the Trump he said jealously. Up, so there's a check mark waiting to be taken. <laughs> Good oh, God. Anyway, isn't it, hasn't it been great not hearing every day about some new horror that the president's so great. done? So great. Politics is again. Yay. All right. Um, Bill Graham, what about yourself? Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CableBFG. You can also find me on Instagram at BillStagram. Um, and also just continuously mixing it up on the Slack channel, Not which right. Robin is now a part of. Woo! Hi. And she is fucking in charge of the food channel. Yeah, basically. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I do with my life. In honor of Silence of the Lambs, I made a three meat chili. I will not tell you what those meats are. With fava beans? Oh, that would have been good. No, just garbanzo. It's really hard to fa- find fava beans for whatever mm. reason where I live. I, like, I've like i literally looked before. Because... Also, don't you have to soak the hell out of them for days and things? Yeah, fuck Probably. it. I want, yeah. I want canned. Lot. I'm an yeah. American. Yeah, give me the beans yeah. in a can. I'm sure you yeah. get them at Whole Foods. I like those, like, the Goya black beans, you know? You can't buy Goya yeah. anymore. Well, we, we don't Wait, do I can't Goya buy Goya anymore. anymore. No. What happened? They're canceled. politically <laughs> canceled. I can't keep up with it. Uh, someone's going to come over to my house. They're going to see that I have a, a friggin' shelf full of Goya, and they're just going to hit me and leave, and I'm not going to yeah, know Yeah, you're going to be canceled. They're going to slam you. You're going to be called Ivanka Trump. That's, I was going to say I've been called worse things, but I actually don't know if I have. Um, that's fantastic. Um, Robin Barr, uh, if people want to yell at you to try to figure out what kind of meat's in your chili, where can they do that? Oh, yeah. Um, you can find me at Robin Barr, R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R. Um, I also write sometimes for The Hollywood Reporter and other places, um, so you can find some TV reviews there. We love having Robin at Hollywood Reporter. Thank you. So great. And I've edited Robin's copy, clean as a whistle. Thank you. I've never gotten a better compliment. (laughs) And as for me, uh, you can find all of my stuff at my personal site, BrianJeroen.com. You can also follow me on all the social medias at BrianJeroen. And yeah, you can find every episode of this year podcast uh, by going to thefilmstage.com. Um, where you can also find more of my writing. And uh, don't forget to go to schmidtspirits.com if you're in the D.C. area, because that's my distillery, and we love giving you booze in exchange for money. So that is all for today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time. Within the sound of silence In restless dreams I walked away